Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Bergs? How's that? I don't know if I've said that. How are you? What's happening? It's Mark Marin. This is my show, WTF. Welcome to it. I hope you are well. I hope you are enjoying your morning, afternoon, evening. I hope you're almost asleep if you're trying to get to sleep with the dulcet tones of my aggravation. I hope that is helping you. I hear that it helps some people. I hear it helps some people sleep. I don't know how that is, but good night. Good night, little ones. So what's happening? I I am trying to uh, promote some shows. The last couple episodes, what is the last three, I think, episodes of Marin are on Wednesday nights at nine on IFC. What else is happening? As you know, I'm doing some club dates. I think you should know that if you're listening to this fairly regularly you should know uh, all the trip anyhow shows are done i'm at the ice house on july 3rd that's sunday uh, that's sold out spokane comedy club july uh, 7th 8th and 9th uh, tickets available spokane washington yeah wise guys salt lake city july 14th 15th and 16th in salt lake i think there's tickets for that the comedy attic bloomington indiana july 28th 29th and 30th and uh stand up live phoenix arizona august 18 and 19 so those are shows oh yeah 22 three days at stand up live that's a big old room i'll be in albuquerque hometown september 3rd and the comedy club in rochester new york september 9th and 10th so yeah go to wtfpod.com slash tour to get uh get hooked up with links to those tickets i'd like to see you somewhere if you're going to be there new material and stuff is coming along pretty good went through a minor crisis last night because uh it was hot here it's been hot here i'm not complaining uh this is the way la is la has no seasons just uh kind of hot uh not as hot as arizona and then a little chilly at night those are the three seasons um and uh it's it's very bizarre after a certain point when uh when you live somewhere where there are no seasons because you don't know how many fucking years have gone by holy shit i've been here how long 12 years jeez i wonder if i'm gonna get a parking ticket and this season it's sort of like right like right now it's like all right things are on fire and there are ants must be summer los angeles did I mention there's a new batch of WTF cat mugs available from Brian Jones up in Portland? They go on sale at 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific today. Go to brianrjones.com to get yours. Also, coming up, forthcoming, is it at some point, uh, 
in the near future, Chuck Klosterman uh, will be on uh, the show here. Uh, but before that happens, I want to tell you about his book, But What If We're Wrong? Thinking about the present as if it were the past. It's out now. You can get it wherever you get books. I read it, and I learned some things, and I thought about things differently. Thank you, Chuck. It's going to be exciting to talk to you. Today on the show, we have sort of a doubleheader. I'm going to do a little chat with... Uh, with uh, John Carpenter, and then uh, the, the two directors, Joe Dante, later in the show, the director of uh, Gremlins, Gremlins 2, Inner Space. He did that amazing uh, section of the uh, Twilight Zone movie. And obviously, John Carpenter has directed a ton of stuff. He's a fucking genius, the John Carpenter. They're both great directors, I think. John Carpenter, of course, Halloween the Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble, Little China, They Live, one of my uh, favorite John Carpenter movies. Probably The Thing is the my biggest favorite. He was uh, dropping by primarily to talk about his music, but uh, we got some other stuff in. We got a little stuff. Yeah, we got some other stuff in, and me and Joe talked for quite a while. It's interesting I talked to these directors, especially John Carpenter, because I'm not, I was never a horror guy. My brother was more horror-driven, but I have no patience for thrillers. I don't really like horror, uh, only because uh, it, 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 it punches my brain a little too hard. I mean, there are things I remember, and I guess that's the point, but, uh, but I think that if I watched too many horror movies, I would be scarred for, for life. I mean, I, I like them. I guess Aliens would be considered a horror movie, and uh, I don't know if you ever forget like there, there, some horror movie memories are more visceral than than actual memories. Like I talked to a Joe Dante about the Fly, the sequel of the Fly. I think we were talking about, and uh, might have been the um, the Return of the Fly. But uh, it was there was an image in there where a guy got in the machine with a with a rodent of some kind, and he had like rabbit hands and rabbit feet, and it fucking scarred my brain. I can't get out of my head. Scanners, that guy's head blowing up. It, it's like it's visceral and still very present to me. The uh, dawn, which with that is it Day of the Dead. The, I like I like horror movies that have a satiric edge to them. I liked um, like the, what is it the uh, Dawn of the Dead or Day of the Dead? Which is the one with the shopping mall scene? What other ones I see? Like oh, I talked to John Carpenter a little bit about the thing and those the one guy when he's getting taken over by the thing and the dogs and the, oh man, there are a few that really that really stay with me. What was that great cannibal movie that Guy Pierce was in? And Ravenous, Ravenous. That's one of my, fa is that a cult movie? Does anyone know that movie? Robert Carlyle, Jeffrey Jones is in it. It's a fucking great movie. I would definitely consider it of the horror genre, genre. But I, as you can tell, I'm not, uh, I'm not a huge, uh, huge horror guy. I mean, I've seen a lot of Carpenter's movies, but not all of the horror movies and the ones like They Live that had a sort of powerful satirical uh, punch to them. I enjoy those uh, the most. But The Kitten, let's talk kittens. That could have been a horror show, but it wasn't. Maybe it was last weekend that I just heard a kitten yelping on my porch at 2.30 in the morning, this tiny black kitten and then it came to eat a couple of times and it was really too small to be out there and i didn't know if it was completely feral or not it seemed a little young to be uh, fully feral but uh sarah who's a cat trapping wizard wanted to trap it and 
see what we could do. And it's hard. It's hard to trap out here because you could trap a skunk. You could trap a raccoon. You could trap a shitload of hairy trouble in those traps if you don't keep an eye on them. So we got this little kitten. And I don't think it's... Uh, I think it's maybe six weeks old. So it's definitely not feral. It's over at uh, Sarah's uh, integrating, getting fed. I'm running around too much. I got my two cats here. I can't manage the kitten situation. She's managing it for now. But I do think I'm going to take it in and keep it uh, and give my cats a friend. Give my two cats, Monkey and LaFonda, a little friend. If not a friend, some sort of like a little guy to beat up on. But see, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that to the cat. We'll see. It's an adorable black cat. It's healthy, needs to be dewormed, and it needs a flea bath, but it's jumping around. It was a little nuts at first, but now it's just a little kitten. We got it. I think we got it in just a nick of time before before it turned into a totally scary, wild fucking animal. Within it's weird because within weeks it would have been a totally scary, wild fucking animal. I think we just made it under the wire where we can do the like, no, we're your parents. So that worked out. That is actually going to be the first tame cat I've had in a long time. So John Carpenter was here and we talked for a bit. Sometimes uh, these talks uh, yield what they're going to yield. It was a good talk and uh, he came here to talk about his music, which is great. I, I enjoyed the records. Uh, his most recent album of original music, Lost Themes 2, is available now. And we did get a little bit of movie talk in, but we did what we could. It was nice to meet him and good to hang out for a bit. This is me and John Carpenter. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get Get your podcasts. Carpenter. How's this? It's good with me. Can uh, you hear like you? I FM announcer. Yeah. yeah, do it. Thank you very much. There's not many of us who remember that anymore. I know. It's bizarre, isn't it? It is bizarre, That's dude. bizarre. That, that guy. I hey, what's going on? We're going to play the side one of Jesse Colin Young's new record. Oh, stop. <laughs> Jesse Colin Young. Wow. For some, <laughs> wow. For some reason, that's the one name in my mind that sticks out from when I was in high school, is that guy always playing whole sides of records. I was like, not Fogelberg. <laughs> the fuck? Who needs Fogelberg? Uh, I don't mean to shit on Fogelberg. That's okay. I don't know if he's a friend of yours. Or no, not. he's not. No. You don't know him? No, I don't know him. So John Carpenter, uh, not scary in person. No. <laughs> unfortunately, huh? <laughs> How did you get, uh, you know, I did listen to, um, we can start out with that, that music, because, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, the Sacred Bones label, uh-huh. and they do a lot of great rock music and experimental music. How did you get uh, linked up with those guys? Where'd that happen? It was kind of by accident. I... Uh, I got a music uh, attorney. 
Uh-huh. And she said, well, have you got any new music? And so I sent along uh, some music that my son and I had been improvising. Oh, really? Okay. And uh, a month later, she said, uh, you have a record deal. That was it. <laughs> What's your son play? My son's a synthesizer guy and uh-huh. drums and various things. And uh, you have this, because I know that you scored all the films. I actually this morning went and uh, reminded myself of the Halloween theme. Like I... I I knew that was a, a big uh, a big part of that film and a part of what you know scarred me and many others as a child. My pleasure. Uh huh. But uh, but I was surprised, and maybe not surprised, but pleasantly surprised when I listened to uh, the first Lost Themes record. How nicely it sort of you know plays as a whole record. Like you know, I listened to the whole side straight through on the good good equipment. Flip wow. that shit over and listen to the next side all through. It was like. Uh, you like Tangerine Dream, you know. Like yeah, you you, yeah, you get yeah. that kind of flow. I love Tangerine Dream. Do you? Oh, I love that. How fucking great are they, oh, right? Oh, man. Then they've been around for a while, too. Huh? Are they still all around? I don't know. I think so. Did an album with uh, Jean-Michel Jarre uh-huh. uh, this year. They were on it. So. Yeah. yeah. So that was sort of, uh, you know, that was in your head, huh? Yeah, yeah. I guess so. For how long? I mean, how long well, have you known I about first, I first uh, knew about Tangerine Dream back from a movie called Sorcerer in 1978. William Friedkin. I just had him in here, man. Oh, he's awesome. We were talking about Sorcerer for like Uh, a half hour, man. Sorcerer is a great movie, and he's a great director. Yeah, but Tangerine, I didn't even put that together. I knew they did the soundtrack because I was thinking Thief. I remember the soundtrack. That too, yeah, yeah. Because that soundtrack was like right up. It was almost Uh, bigger than the movie. uh So what? uh, when did you start writing music? I well, I started. My father was a uh, music teacher, so he decided when I was about eight years old that I needed to start learning the violin. Unfortunately, I had no talent at it. Yeah, but I, I struggled and I finally quit. But I went on to keyboards and guitars, and I had a local rock and roll band in the oh, yeah? little town I lived in. Where was this? Bowling Green, Kentucky. In Kentucky, uh, a rock band. Uh, what uh, year are we talking, John? We're talking the sixties. You doing covers? You doing originals? Oh, all covers. Taking uh, acid? Covers. What are you doing? No, no, no. Straight, no? Boy, straight boy. Yeah. But uh, then I went to California to learn movies. So came was your here. daddy composer? He was. In addition to being a, a violinist and a teacher, and so uh, so you grew up in a house where filled with music and classical music. Mostly. And he had a piano, I imagine. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. Could he lay down on the keys too? Can he do it? Yeah. So uh, so that's a that's a beautiful thing. Yeah yeah yeah. That's yeah. where I came from. So. A, it's good. It's better than hating the house. That's correct. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. And where did he teach? He taught at Western Kentucky University, which is a college, was a teacher's college there in Bowling Green. Uh-huh. Became a university. It's now growing a university. Still uh-huh. there. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And he was the, the head of the music department? That's correct, yeah. And what did your mom do? Well, she was a secretary, just uh-huh. a mom. Yeah, yeah. My father was one of the founding members of the Nashville Strings. And what that is is backup strings from for Roy Orbison and Brenda Lee and all the Nashville recording artists. Really? So he played for everybody, including Johnny Cash. He played for everybody. So he's on all those records? Oh, yeah. On the Roy Orbison records? On the Roy Orbison records. Those are beautiful strings. You know, Crying? Yeah. That's him. Crying. That's him. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. So you grew up with that, too? Yeah. Was was he doing it when you were a conscious person? Absolutely. I I was conscious. And I would go down with him to the recording studios, and I got to see Roy Orbison and a bunch of them doing it, laying it down. Oh my oh, yeah, god! That's awesome. That's amazing because because uh, I just got that uh, the the box set of Roy's that's all that on that one label. I don't remember what label, mm-hmm. and it's all it must be all your dad on there because mm-hmm. it's all that orchestration. That's right. God, he was uh, 
heart-wrenching uh, artist. Roy Orbison had an incredible voice. It was and, just unbelievable, transformative voice. Yeah, and it was uh, it, it, you can feel it. It yeah. kind of cuts through your guts. Yeah, yeah. And you, did you see Johnny Cash too? I did not see him. No, I didn't. Who were some of the other guys you were in? God, there? who I see? Brenda Lee. Oh I yeah. Saw, uh, What's her name? Teresa Brewer. Uh-huh. Uh huh. My father recorded with Dusty Springfield back when she was a member of a group, the Springfields. No kidding. Yeah, is that weird? How far is Nashville from uh, Bowling Green? About sixty miles. So it's an hour run. Yeah. So he did it. this before he was a, a, a professor, or no? During. during. Oh yeah. my God. He moonlighted. Yeah. And how? Yeah. It, oh, that's a that's a good that's a good uh, childhood experience. Yeah, that's where I came from. So I had that in my back pocket. And I brought it with me into the movie business because, you know, when you're making little movies, you're mm -hmm. making student films or low-budget movies, you don't have money for sure. a score. Mm -hmm. So I could do it myself. And, and you can write music? I can't write it. I no. just improvise it. Uh -huh. I hear it. And what, what, what's your primary instrument when you're working it well, out? Well, I'm a piano. A uh, synthesizer. Yeah. Keyboards. Yeah, because, like, you know, I noticed on, on the Lost Themes 1... Uh, and I'm glad she brought me too because they gave me a digital download. But I become sort of a vinyl snob lately. I understand, yeah. Uh, is that you know there's a groove to it. I mean there's that, there's a there's a drum there's a push to it. You know it, it never sits still. Mm -hmm. And you know you, there's a there's a full on momentum and and it carries you through the whole thing. Even more so in two. Two is a, even it's going a little bit further than one. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. Well good. I got yeah. something to look forward to after yeah, that's this. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and no digital, huh? You're a, you're a pure. No no no. Vinyl I got man. I got digital. But if I can get the vinyl, I'd rather sit and listen yeah. to it on that. It does make a difference, I think. Maybe I'm crazy. I don't know. I don't know either. I, well, don't know. I, I mean, I guess it's the same with anything analog. I mean, where do you stand on films? I, well, <laughs> film has kind of disappeared. Right. And, and they're not projecting it anymore in the United States. Is that saddening you? Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. What, what is even crazier is, look, when I was a kid growing up in the 1950s, the television was threatening the movies. Sure. So what did the what did the movies do? They had to come up with something to get people in the theaters. Yeah. One of the things they came up with was CinemaScope. Oh, Remember right, that? Right. Yeah. Widescreen. And there's still one down over by uh, on Sunset, right? Sunset and Vine. Yeah. But yeah. guess what? Yeah. Now you watch a movie on your phone. That's crazy. Well, wait a minute now. See, this is it, it's all gone a different direction than I imagined. Yeah. Movies are supposed to be seen on a big screen. Right. With other people around. Right. I, I'm just an old school guy, right? Know? But 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 I think that the argument is is like even in the in the well, there there seems to be something wrong with watching a movie on a phone because, like you said, the experience of what you know we grew up as movies was supposed to be all encompassing. It wasn't supposed to happen passively right. or or you know you stop and start. Yeah. It was it was a real journey and a real escape, and you were able to sort of completely immerse yourself. That's right. That's the whole point. Right. And now people, I guess, do that with video yeah, games. and Yeah, you know, it's just a different world, man. But that's yeah. okay. Yeah, that, it's you, all right. Everything moves on. You can't fight it. So you just got to go with it. You do. You just got to keep moving. <laughs> all right, so when you decide to get into movies, now you got brothers and sisters? No, I meant... You're it. Yeah, I know. It was all on you. Yeah, The me. family name. That was it. Yeah. When did you decide to uh, to get into film? Where'd you go to? Uh, I was eight years old. I saw a movie that transformed me, and I which said, one? "I got to do that." What? Forbidden Planet was the name of the movie mm -hmm. with the Robbie the Robot, right? Sure, and sure. I remember a, that. And it had a uh, it had an electronic score. It was not no orchestral music. And that was the one. So you right of the way, you're like, "Transformed me." I got to do this I, what, because was it funny to you or was it uh, amazing? Oh, it was amazing. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. I had big old eyes. <laughs> they got you on the line. Oh boy. Yeah. 
And uh, in in terms of um, you know other cinematic influences early on, what were they? Like when did you start to appreciate the the bigger pictures? Uh, well, probably the, I, it all came clearer in film school because I began to watch a lot of director's work. So you gave up rock and roll completely? No, not completely, but I did. Uh-huh. I left it. I said, goodbye. I'm going into the movie business. And this is the late 60s, so shit is happening. I mean, Big time. Like, like everything's changing. Hollywood's changing. Music is changing. Big time. Culture is changing. Big time. Huge. And, and you go and you leave and you tell your dad, who I, I imagine was supportive yes. uh, of the decision yep. to go to USC. Yep. And at that time, I mean, that school churned out everybody. Yeah, there was it was, uh, and it had close ties to Hollywood. So we, as students, we got to see old classic Hollywood directors: Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock. They'd come and talk to you, or they'd come and lecture us. Really, Howard Hawks, John Ford—just amazing people would come through there. Uh huh. So we got to see their movies and listen to their stories, and it's we, we try we're trying to figure out how does this, all this work? Right. How does this business work? What and, does it mean to be a director? And they were laying it out for you? Oh, man. Oh, yeah, big. I mean, because you look at the like somebody like uh, like John Ford. Mm. You saw him talk? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Because if you look at the, the number of films these guys made. I know. And, you know. As employees of the studio, and then you know some of them on their own, but like it's a lot of movies. Oh, hell yeah. So it was a real job. Oh, yeah. That was it, and they, oh man, Ford made 150 movies. That's insane. I know, but a lot, some of them were silent, and, just, and he kept making movies until he couldn't walk. Yeah. But we, uh, back to film school again, we were seeing a little of everything there, and we were seeing uh, experimental artists. Yeah, like who? And uh, I can't remember their names now, because I was so was... disinterested in that. I was interested in Hollywood films. Like Kenneth Anger and... Yeah, uh, that's, you know, that... that kind of thing. And yeah, I, yeah. I, I didn't particularly care. But it was all happening at that time. It must have been, there must Huge. have been sort of a lot of influx of a lot of weed and long-haired dudes saying, yeah. like, we're going to do something But weird. it was, you know, it was Vietnam. Right. That was the driving force in everybody's life. We were deep in it. So, By that uh, point, right? When did you we go We were, there? and uh, that was 68, I was, uh-huh. I was there. And uh, so that, that changed culture, it, and it changed everybody's mind. It changed movies, the kind of movies that people were going to see change. Well, completely right. changed. Right. It, uh, it shifted away from that, uh, the musicals and the westerns. They, they, they seemed to, there was a disconnect. Yeah. Who were your contemporaries uh, when you were there? Did you... Uh, Oh, boy, a lot of the Robert Zemeckis was there. Uh, in class with you? Well, he was one class below me. George Lucas was a year ahead. He had mm-hmm. just graduated when uh-huh. I was there. And uh, and what were you uh, what were you working on in school? What did they teach you outside of listening to uh, these great directors, which is obviously a great benefit of having a college connected to Hollywood, but what was the actual training? Plumbing. Oh, everything. Yeah, yeah. You had to learn everything. Camera, editing, sound, uh, er- everything. And, and we you... had to do it all. Yeah. And we had to do it on cruise. And we just kept building up experience. And you started working in 16 millimeter. Uh-huh. And you and you worked in the in the lab. And you worked in animation. And you got an experience of every single aspect of motion pictures. Uh-huh. How does all this go together? Here's how it goes together. And you learned. 
So if you can make a little film like this, you can make a bigger film. You right. Can make a you know a big uh, studio. Film. It started to seem possible. It's exactly. Uh huh. That's exactly. It. And what was going on in Hollywood that you were sort of uh, you know picking up on at that time? Because you're a kid and you're. Well, I mean USC isn't right here, but what was going on in the Strip? Where you did you know that Corman was plugging out shit over there? And- sure. He was. He was very impressive to me since I was a little kid. I would recognize Roger Corman movies. Uh huh. They had an energy to them. Uh huh. They're all exploitation. They're all like attack of the crab monsters and stuff like that. But yeah. they were great. Yeah. <laughs> so he was doing the trip and stuff yeah. like that at the time. I was wonderful. Yeah, I yeah. love Corman movies. You never thought about going out there trying to get a gig out well, there? Well, I wanted to, but you know, it just never worked out. Did you ever meet him? Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah. guys, uh, yeah. I we imagine. became friends later. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I love Corman. He's well, a great guy. Well, he certainly knows how to bring him in under budget, oh, man. But. <laughs> And he's made uh, just an incredible number of movies, almost like uh, a John Ford. Different kinds sure. of movies. <laughs> and he created a, a great place for people to learn, whether sure. he liked it or Big not. Time. Big like, time. Actors, yeah. directors, sure. all the cats who were, sure. you know, they, they took a lesson over there. Who was it? Maybe John Demi, I think. Uh, right? Jonathan Demi was there, but uh, Martin Scorsese, Bogdanovich worked for him. Yeah. But you know, the strip, you talk about the cultural. Yeah. This was a great time for rock and roll in oh, LA. Yeah. Oh, man, are you kidding? Yeah, yeah. It was unbelievable here. So when did uh, did you graduate over there? I never did. I just moved on. I got, I made a, 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 started a student film, started a graduate film that became a feature film called uh-huh. Dark Star. That was my first one. And uh, was that, who worked with you on that? That's Dan O'Bannon. Oh, they, he was—he went on to write some big movies, he huh? He wrote uh, Alien. That yeah, was his big deal. And uh, was uh, what was uh, what was your movie about? What was Dark Star? About? That was a outer space adventure made by by a student filmmaker on on the cheap, and it was a kind of a comedy and. It was what it was for the time. You know? So you always had a sense of humor about it. I think that must have come from Forbidden Planet and Corman films. Maybe. Like, I don't know. But but you did do some you know, some serious uh, space work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Worked on it a long time. But then, but but I wrote my way into the movie business, and finally, in in the late seventies, I would started making my own films. Well, what was the uh, so you did Dark Stars? That was a student film. What was the first uh, yeah, Assault on Precinct Thirteen? Was my first thirty-five millimeter feature. And what you know, what was that a reaction to? Nothing. It was just kind of a urban western. Okay, and that was what it was. That was there's no. There's no no uh, societal uh, message in in that movie. There's but, nothing uh, except guys trapped inside a police station fighting for their lives. So what was the next film? Uh, well, the next movie I made a uh, a TV uh, film, but the next movie I made was Halloween, and that was 1970. 78. Yeah, I I was in uh, I was in high school. You were you're a child. I didn't realize what a child you were. I'm in 52. Wow. Yeah, and uh, it was a pretty big deal, John. Uh, Halloween was a pretty big deal. <laughs> it kind of kind of set the ball rolling for yeah. for everything in that genre. But let me explain to you what it was about. If people saw this movie come out and yeah. they said, "Oh, look at that! This cheap little movie made a whole bunch of money." Right. That's they, they what love it set that. the ball that, rolling. That's what Hollywood said. That's exactly right. Hey, they can do this for this wow, amount of money. Let's make some money like that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 how, how how cheap was it? It was uh, two hundred and twenty thousand bucks, and it grossed seventy five million, something like that. Pretty good, pretty good Not return. Bad. Not bad. Now, when you did that movie, uh, what? I mean, I know you were, uh, as you just said, a fan of fantasy and science fiction, but was horror your thing? Yeah, I loved horror. Horror was great. 
Why? Because I grew up with it as a kid. I would watch the shock theater on television with Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula and uh-huh. all those movies, and they were great. Uh-huh. And we didn't have much in the 50s in terms of youth culture, so right. we needed monster movies. Monster mm-hmm. movies was it. But did you approach it with humor, or were you actually looking? Because, I mean, Halloween, I think, began something that there was suspense, but the mixture of horror and suspense that was actually you know, violent and, and, and that there was going to be a like a relentless sort of kind of journey through many murders uh, just for the sake of it, in a way, just for the thrill of it, was fairly new, wasn't it? I mean, those like movies like Frankenstein and stuff, I mean, you knew that you know, it was bullshit on some level. <laughs> <laughs> like there was, my brother liked him. I was not a horror movie kid, but he liked him because he got a kick out of him. The, but, the, the whole point of Halloween was simply to scare the shit out of you. Right. That was it. They're, for they're, real, though. Not like, you know, get you. not Frankenstein. But that scared people in those days. Did it? You've got to understand. Did uh, it? Yes, big time. Big time. Are you kidding? The Depression-era audiences were terrified of those movies. Huh. That really got them. Yeah? Oh, big. Like he, was, that, the Frankenstein movies, Dracula scared people. Uh, so Psycho. Like, Psycho, began right. the slasher craze. Okay, all right. That was the uh, that's the granddaddy. Right, right. So the shower scene you can't get more famous than that. Right. So I couldn't outdo that. So all I could do was make this movie that scared people because you didn't know what was going to happen next. But you knew it was going to be bad, and you were afraid of what you might see. Uh-huh. You didn't see anything in Halloween. There was no gore to it. It was nothing. But it's what you thought you might see. We saw bodies. Well, so what? Yeah. <laughs> You're saying you didn't see the act necessarily, no, hell no. and you didn't see the guy's now, face. Later on, I've done tougher things, but that one was pretty soft. And when you were making it, you know, was your intention to to to, to sort of uh, do something new with a genre or to make money? No, I wanted to be a director. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. I didn't care about the money. Yeah, the money yeah. was secondary. I wanted to be a movie director. And that was what you wanted to do, that, those kind of movies? Any kind of movie. Hell, yeah. what I did the same year as Halloween was the TV movie Elvis. Right, with, with Kurt, uh, Russell. Kurt Russell. I so remember I, that movie. I don't care if it's scary or a musical or a Western. I want to do it. Let's yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's, let's shoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and from there you worked. I kept working, yeah. And after Lucky. and after uh, Elvis, what was the next big movie? Well, then we did The Fog and Escape from New York. Escape and, from uh, New York. That was a completely different sort of movie. Yeah. And, uh, and like, you know, when I think about them, like, you know, that I guess getting known to work within those budget restraints, that you really had to be creative in a way that uh, that wasn't afforded to you know, people who were making million, multi-million dollar budget That's movies. Right. That's right. We were low budget movies. So we had to we had to work a little bit harder and be figure things out ahead of time. Yeah. We had to know what we were going to do. And how to and how to make the illusion work. That's right. And That's with right. Escape from New York, I mean, you know, it worked. So yeah. how old were you in 1981? I just graduated in high school. Okay, what were you doing? Oh, I was uh, deciding, you know, maybe I shouldn't go to college, maybe smoking a little weed. Oh, that sounds uh, good. Yeah, sounds but I was good. definitely going to movies. Really? We, sure. Because we had a revival house and we got very excited about movies coming out. We saw that movie when it came out. Uh, you know, and I think 81 was, you know, Raging Bull year. Was oh, yeah, so. good stuff, huh? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, me and my buddy Devin were, were definitely movie heads. Sure. But we were always looking forward to, to, to what you were going to do and the fact that this was so different from the other thing. Mm-hmm. And Kurt Russell, it, I think it was sort of a breakout thing for him, nah. too, because we all knew him as that Disney movie kid. That's right. 
and uh, and here he was this heavy yeah. And, yeah. and i think that 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 our general reaction was like he did all right yeah <laughs> he did okay oh yeah, yeah man. way to go Kurt. what was your relationship with him because he's we gone. became friends yeah and we became friends over the work ethic we both had this work ethic he came from disney movies where man you had to do it right you had to show up and know every line and you had to hit your marks and you had to just do it perfectly mm -hmm. and uh i came being responsible man i have to do this get all this work done today right so uh we both became friends over that over the work yeah. ethic like yeah. getting shit done that's right and believing in the vision because like right. he must have trusted you a bit he did yeah to to guide him through this thing and uh, i i said well if you can play elvis i can direct this <laughs> I thought he did a pretty good job, he as, as he, I remember. He was good. He was, yeah. and then and then in '82, yeah, that the the thing, your yeah. remake of the thing, yeah. is still uh, still there are images from that that still fuck my head up. Yeah, oh, good. That's good. Definitely, I'm happy about that. I do feel I feel like that was one of your best horror movies. I think it was the best. Um, you know, it was a it was hated at the time. Why? I don't know. It was too strong. In what yeah. way? It's too strong, too bleak. Uh, People needed, I guess they needed some hope back then. I don't know. Maybe. They needed hope from that movie? No, I don't know. They will get in the wrong no, place. No, I know. But, <laughs> These uh, guys so, are stranded in the Arctic, right? Yeah, but, you know, I thought, oh, I've, I've done it. I know I've really made a good movie, and uh, I don't think a lot of people thought so. What was it like shooting that? Where'd you do it? It was t pretty tough. Uh, we went to Stewart, British Columbia, which is an ice port, and there's a glacier An up ice there. port. So you're so, out there. You're really oh, yeah. in the out. You're in yeah. the ice. And uh, we built a set up on a glacier and shot up there. And it's pretty cold and rough and rugged. And there weren't any girls. And a bunch of Hollywood actors uh -huh. arrive. And you know, um, they live. Yeah. At the time I saw that, uh, I was fairly consumed with a, a certain amount of uh, paranoia. Oh, were you? Well, yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I'd done a little drugs. Uh, that got me in a little bit of mental trouble, and I'd seen I was seeing the world as a as there was a conspiracy, a dark yeah. conspiracy involved, I which see. there is. But you know, we know who they are. We but when, when when they live happened, I was like, he knows. Yeah, yeah that guy knows. Well, you know, that was uh, my rage at the Reagan revolution and yuppies mm -hmm. and the and the greed of the eighties. I just I couldn't take it. So that so, was a direct reaction. That was it. And I got to work with uh, the late, great Roddy Piper, who was just fun to work with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that was his one big movie, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. He did great in it, too. He did great. Came from another world. That's, you know, wrestling's a whole other sure. world. Sure, sure. But you're like, so you were, you were conscious of channeling uh, an attack. On oh, yeah. Well, I was fed up. Yeah. What I was, was just it? fed what? up with the values. Uh -huh. And they just changed so much since... I don't know. Since I was, uh, they changed so much since the seventies. They changed. It was so right wing. Yeah. And you know he's an icon now. Yeah. Reagan's icon. To certain and people. The values. Yeah, so not to me. <laughs> the values that he brought to the country. And I just was so angry about it. And that was the result. That movie was the result. Because yeah, because there's a sort of you know ongoing metaphor that that you know we're sort of dealing with the culture of death. Yeah. And but I, the, but the, but the eighties never ended uh -huh. they are still with us right. today yeah and they live is truly more of a documentary than it is a than it is a, a dramatic film it i mean it is real it is these real. people are crazy out there yeah now, that's true there are no lizard people 
There yeah. is no dark conspiracy in the in the Sphinx. There's mm-hmm. nothing like that. Yeah, the the but, eye in the pyramid is meaningless. No, no, no. Now no, that doesn't mean the free, Freemasons aren't no, scary. No, yeah. no. <laughs> However, business does run us. And That's it right. Runs our politics, and it runs our country. And an unregulated free market will do that, nothing but you, destroy the world. You got it. That's it. And that was what that reaction. That's, it. Was. That's all it is. It's it's not it's not that free markets are bad. Right. Free markets are great. Right. But you can't let them bury us. Yeah, I don't. It's fascinating it's just, to me. I don't get well, it. what it is is like you know this idea that capitalism is a a functioning system, which it is. But yeah. you know, if it's just untethered, how are you, how do people not think greed isn't going to consume anything I, good? That's correct. You got it. You got yeah. it. I I don't know where the logic came. Is that a surprise? The bankers figured out how to rig the system. But capitalism is not a religion that you must. It's not a pure right. virgin that that's you right. mustn't touch. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We like to survive a little well, bit. That's right. That's correct. So, what did, when you saw such mainstream, like now, like horror couldn't be more mainstream. Couldn't be more. Do you, you think know, it is marketable? Right? Do you think it is what the Walking Dead? Yeah. Oh, and, no, the, and the and the and the vampire stuff. I mean, it's not my bag, but somebody's making some big bread <laughs> off true. that when shit. You put, when you put it that way, in terms of The Walking Dead, it's true. It's crazy. But you you understand something. That was a movie that George Romero made back sure. in 68. Yeah. And they have milked, people have milked his movie, and they are still milking it. Yeah. Oh, it's unreal. Oh, it's, it's unreal. Oh, those, un- it's you, unbelievable. Are you but, friends with him? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a good friend. What those, those, the three They drive him crazy. They do. Yeah. I yeah. mean, come on, man. Well, anyway. Well, he should be getting a little bit, right? He should get a little piece of that. But uh, I think horror is due for a, a new beginning here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's due for a resurgence. We have to change it. We have to change it up. We can't do these these cheap poltergeist movies either. Right. Uh, paranormal. Uh-huh. That's yeah, what yeah. I'm talking about. Right, right. Stop. Please stop now. Right. It's just a cheap movie. Come on now. And we're due for our change, and it'll come. Well, what do you, what, how do you see it? Well, horror movies have been with us since the beginning of cinema, and they're always the same. Most of them are bad. Mm-hmm. A few, a few are average, and a couple are really good. Right, and they keep changing with the culture. Right. Okay. So it's like Vietnam. You saw the violence change. Okay. Mm-hmm. Horror movies change too. So they'll change again as the culture changes, as we evolve and move through time. Now, what's it like working with your son? Oh, it's awesome. Are you kidding? What's well, a family? How, what do you want? How it's old is awesome. he? He's thirty-one. Yeah, and my godson's thirty-four, and we're just a little family operation. Yeah, mom and, he, and pop shop, and you do it out of the house. Yeah, do we you? do. We do downstairs. We have a computer system down there, and it's a Logic Pro computer setup with a lot of plugins and a lot of sounds. Uh huh. We bring guitars in. We bring whatever we need. Yeah, and, and you just have fun. We're making music. Oh, it's yeah. awesome! It's awesome. Is that is it selling the music? Is it selling? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. People seem to like it. That's great, man. Yeah. I mean, it's not. I'm not making as much money as I did in the movies. But yeah. I don't care. Yeah. I just don't care. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm an old guy now, and I just never thought I'd have a second act. Uh huh. Because usually uh, people in America don't have second acts. But here I'm a, playing music. I'm going to go out on tour. Are you kidding? Are you? Life is great. Yeah, we're touring this year. Uh, who are you going to tour with? They, they My said. kids. Right. <laughs> and a band. We have the uh, Tenacious D's band playing with us. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It'll be fun. Well, that's a blast, man. Yeah. And so, But you're, are you telling me you're done with movies? No, no. Maybe. We'll see. But I just don't care like I used to. Mm-hmm. You know? I've gotten old and... 
I've looked back on my career and I'm happy about it. Yeah. I just don't have, but I don't have the same consuming drive that you do when you're young. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know what it's like. It's starting, you, you, you know. Yeah, but you have to let that go. You have to embrace the uh, the Zen of life. Right. I like saying it on your microphones. The Zen, zen of, of life. life. Yeah. Was that a struggle for you to do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what what well, broke see, you? You get addicted to to what you do, your work, and I don't know. I just got burned out. I said I had to stop. Well, I love the records, and uh, you know, thanks, I, man. I appreciate you hanging out. That's fun. Well, thanks, John. Good hey, talking man. to you. Thank you. That was me and John tight chat. It's uh, it's as much as he wanted to talk. I, I will tell you that right now. Joe Dante was here. And again, the movie Gremlins, great satire, in my mind. And when the little things pop out, oh, how fun is that? It's like you feel bad for a little gizmo, and then you're like, oh, poor gizmo. Oh, look at those. Oh, there's more. But uh, there was a couple of things that Dante did, and I talked to him about it, that, that really had a profound impact on on me. You can check out Joe's web series, Trailers from Hell, at trailersfromhell.com. Yes. So now let's, uh, let's join me. And Joe Dante here in the garage. That's an interesting thing to say. You know, they bring you to the orphanage is something you grow up with. I know. I, know. I don't. <laughs> not many people use that word, but me. Yeah, but you must have grown up with it. Somebody must I did, have said no, it. it was the orphanages were where you sent food for, uh-huh. you know, like Biafra was the other place. Oh, right, did. right. Yeah, the, <laughs> the Biafra, that's in Africa, correct? Yeah. yeah. But that's interesting. That's like a, a Catholic East Coast thing, it yes, feels it like. Yes, definitely a Catholic <laughs> East Coast thing, is, which is what I am. Yeah? Where'd you grow up? Uh, I, li- I grew up in various places in New Jersey, you know. Jersey? Livingston, New Jersey, Morristown. Oh, my God. Morristown. Yeah. I was born in Jersey. Well, it's all changed. It's gone. Have huh? you been back? No, no, I don't. There's no reason for me. Well, I, there is. You're right. There is no reason. But yeah, uh, it, it used to be very verdant. It was called the Garden State. Yes. Now it's the McAdam State. What's it's, that mean? It's just everything's sort of flattened you know, out. Flattened out and strip mauled. Strip mauled and uh, lots of pharmaceutical companies. Really? Yeah. I always remember it in the summer being humid and lush, and you drive. It was, you almost felt high because it was so humid, and there was almost like a like a mist to it a with haze. all this the humid yeah, haze. that's it a haze yeah. and it was all green yeah. and they had those tomatoes remember the jersey tomato yeah, jersey tomatoes yeah that was the thing you can't find a good tomato anywhere ever now no, and they were, then they weren't covered with pesticides then either right and they were big yeah. and you could eat them like an apple what happened to those days, I Joe? Know. Those days are gone, along with a lot of other things. Chasing fireflies, we used to do that. That's right, you know? chasing fireflies all around. And uh, remember when they built Paramus Park or Willowbrook Mall? Willowbrook, Willowbrook Mall, Mall was a big deal. Big deal. People came from far and wide. It was the original mall, I think. Yeah. That was like what defined mall culture. But that mall was a little... Culture, we, we, did you, how, you're that little. Was, I, I think I, I probably had escaped from there by then. Yeah? That was probably in the 60s. I think I was probably... Just, Is that when you ran away in the 60s? I didn't, I didn't run away. I went to college. And that was in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah? Right in Philly? Yeah. In, in the late 60s? Philadelphia College of Art from 64 to 68, I guess. So that was it. That was... Everything was shifting. The entire oh, world yeah. was oh, no, changing. It was a completely different world. It was a very interesting place to be during that time because it was... Uh, as I wasn't political yeah. until the Chicago convention. Uh-huh. And 68. I was radicalized watching television and suddenly realized that there was stuff going on here that I needed to be a part of. And... Uh, 
Back then, the New York Post was a liberal rag. Really? Yeah, it was. Then it was a. It was. A, it was almost like the Village Voice. I mean, it was no really. Shit. Yeah, it was great. I can't even imagine. Catherine that. Graham. Yeah, uh-huh. ran, ran it, and um, so that was where I all the Jimmy Breslin typewriters right. were, were there. Jimmy Breslin. Did you know that he was William Friedkin's first choice or second choice for Popeye Doyle? I yes, I did know that. It's crazy. No, it'd be great. He just, he wasn't really much of an actor. That's what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> I talked to Freak and he said he, he was a little bit of drunky and he didn't show up and he wasn't much of an actor. But Jackie Gleason. What a good writer. Yes. Jackie Gleason was his first choice. Yeah. That would have been interesting. Wait, wait, it would have. It yeah. would have certainly no, been. He's a, a great actor. Sure he is. But he couldn't have made that run. There's there a lot of running. No, I, I think he, he had some double work in there. Yeah. <laughs> Hackman did a lot of running. All right, so you're there, 64, like literally the country changes when you, from when you start art school to the end. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and so, well, and okay. this is, you got to remember, this is the beginnings of the Beans and the yeah. psychedelic era and all that stuff. It was just basically creeping up and it was all tied to the Vietnam War. Right. Uh, and the draft, which yeah. as you may recall, uh, the the one of the big reasons why there were uh, protests and stuff was because people were literally being plucked out of their American lives and sent into the jungle. Uh, whereas in the uh, Iraq war, yeah. uh, everybody's a volunteer. Right. So you didn't get that level of back home it, panic people, people were still upset but but there wasn't really much organized resistance particularly to the beginning of the uh-huh. Iraq war um and it was mostly cheerleading it was mostly well great fine let's go do this it's great yeah because well then we were coming off a a, a string of uh, what were framed as victories other than korea really mm-hmm. and i guess no one could assume what a what a clusterfuck that well Vietnam we always was. had victories we never had <laughs> yeah. you know, just anything we did we yeah. could do yeah so did you uh, were you drafted did you have i to... was uh, i had my number Mm-hmm. Uh, I was one Y. Mm-hmm. So they, what does that mean? One Y that that I had had epilepsy when I was a kid. Oh, and so that ruled me out. Uh huh. So I didn't have to shoot my foot off. I didn't have to. <laughs> Didn't have to go to the draft board with my finger twitching as or, if I was going to be you or, know, or shooting sh- a gun. Or fill your asshole with a peanut butter yeah, so you no, could act crazy. I, I, didn't, I didn't have to do that but my, or go to Canada, but a lot of my friends did. Did you have siblings that uh, were drafted? Or? No, 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 my brother was too young. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And what, uh, when do you start? Because, I mean, it seems to me that like in terms of film that you were certainly of your generation, at least as a film fan... Well, yeah. I mean, I was a I was a a, a movie kid basically. I, I you know, so we didn't have a TV when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had radio, mm-hmm. and uh, but the movies were bigger than life. They were up at a big screen. Uh, it was the Disney cartoons, of course. You know, Peter Pan and Snow mm-hmm. White and those kind of things that really you know got me interested. But in the, there used to be a quaint uh, custom called the Saturday matinee. Yeah, and uh, every Saturday, uh, the first boy and girl in line would get in free. It was mm-hmm. a quarter. To yeah, them. yeah. But if you got in free, you could spend your money on candy, right? Uh, which was very cheap at the time. <laughs> sure. And uh, they would run two features, uh, ten cartoons, and a serial chapter. Mm-hmm. So you know, you could you could dump the kid off <laughs> for the day <laughs> for the day, and then he comes home and he you know saw this stuff. The, and the fifties was an interesting period because almost all adult movies were still suitable for kids, right? Uh, and there was a lot of kids movie stuff. Sure, and it was also you know the Atomic Fear era, right? The uh, the giant insects, the you know the the the, the idea we we're going to go to space. So there were a lot of space stuff, and what we find there, well, there'll be enemies like the communists, you know. And this is what filled your child imagination. Filled my childhood's anime, along with comic books, because I was a huge comic book fan, and what I wanted your... to be a cartoonist. Oh, you did? Yeah, and uh, my favorite comic was Uncle Scrooge. 
huh. which was written by a guy named Carl Barks, uh, who was known as the quote the good artist uh-huh. of the uh-huh. Disney cartoons, uh-huh. and his whole. Duckburg saga of the backstories and all this stuff were light years apart from the cartoon Donald Duck, who sure. was basically a, a Daffy Duck type. But this this character was sophisticated and intelligent. And he had they, they were they were really well written stories. And for instance, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah. uh, is based on a Uncle Scrooge comic. It is called the Seven Cities of Sibylla. Uh, Spielberg has admitted this. Is it was that he's Kas- a, he was a huge uh, Barks fan as but well. But was he, that cast in script? Uh, that was Kasdan, yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, so, so, it, but Spielberg conceived of the story? Uh, he was a huge that? Karl Barks fan. And when I would go to his office, uh, he would have these actual commissioned paintings no from Karl Barks of the, of the ducks, which are now worth a fortune. So that was a generational thing, because I don't know, I'm not a big comic book guy, but I don't know anything of it. I don't know anything uh, about it. It was when you were in the 50s mm-hmm. as a kid, uh, there were different kinds of comics. There was superhero comics and the kind that were always popular, but there was a, a little cadre of nerdy kids who yeah. really identified with the Donald Duck world. Uh-huh. And um, so, and Spielberg obviously was one of them. And uh, I went to a lot of trouble to seek out Karl Barks and uh-huh. get paintings from him and really? stuff while he was alive. Yeah, Isn't that something? That was an offshoot of the Donald Duck world. Yeah. And, uh, all right, so you're watching all these, uh, you know, so you're a cartoon freak, I'm right? a cartoon freak. I'm a cartoon, I'm a comic book freak and a cartoon freak. And they, the 10 cartoons... We're interesting because the Disney cartoons were the best and everybody would applaud. And then the Warner Brothers cartoons, they were great. And then you'd go down the line and there would be a little less applause or maybe sometimes groans if it was Little Audrey. Yeah. Or um, uh, the uh, the Paramount cartoons uh-huh. with um, uh, those awful <laughs> characters. <laughs> yeah. that I can't remember the names of. Uh, Her- Herman and Catnip, stuff okay. like that. Yeah, yeah. Stuff that were copies of copies of copies. And then you'd get to the Terry tunes with Paul Terry and Heckle and Jekyll. And these cartoons were so poorly animated that kids would kind of get a little dizzy and sick while watching Because of the repetition? Them. Well, just because it was sloppy. You mm-hmm. know, they didn't want to spend a lot of time. Right. Uh, nonetheless, there were some gems in all of those uh, cartoon groups. But uh, after a while, you really, uh, they would all sort of run together in your head. But there was a constant supply because they were, studios were still making cartoons. Right. And they basically stopped in the early 60s, Warner Brothers kind of gave up on their cartoons, but which had been suffering for quite a while. They were, they were much cheaper. They had to be TV animation style and the jokes weren't as good. And, right. and then when they got to the Pink Panther cartoons, which are actually really terrible, uh-huh. um, they were con- the audiences started to consider them an annoyance. Like, I want to see the feature. Really? Why are we running a cartoon? So that's what happened. So the, the resources ran out, the intention war- ran well, the out. the cartoons then... got bad. The Ant and the Aardvark was not exactly something we're sitting around waiting. Right. Oh, that's, I want to see another Ant and Aardvark cartoon. I mean, they just weren't funny. And, right. and they, were, they were made by some of the same people who had made the great cartoons, but they were getting older. They had a lot less to work with. And even when Chuck Jones tried to do Tom and Jerry, he just didn't have the kind of Tom and Jerry mind that Hannah and Barbara had had. And so his cartoons, while artistic are not really very funny right uh and uh, so it was a the theatrical cartoon era was dying and it had been partly killed off by television right and also like i, I imagine generationally things are different are changing right well yeah i mean it's a different audience and, and, when, and the audience is more sophisticated right and so when you were a kid watching the what were the features that you were going to that resonated with you well as a the kid? the I liked westerns a lot. I was a big Odie Murphy fan, uh-huh. uh, and uh, but it was the, it was really the science fiction pictures that we really loved, and and 
I remember going to see Them, which was a giant insect movie. Yeah. And uh, it was very well done and it was terrifying. And they made sounds that were kind of like crickets, which I had outside my window. Uh-huh. And they had antenna, which, which would rub up against my window sort of like tree branches. And right. I could imagine that there were Made giant sense. ants coming out of the you know the, the lot in back of my house so and that attention to detail and my parents would say well if these pictures give you nightmares why do you go see them uh-huh. and i said because i have to I, there was just something about being scared that was exciting mm-hmm. and comforting uh, it was you know the, comforting. The, the standard you know because you you're 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 playing out your fears of whatever, of, uh-huh. of death or, or whatever your fears are, in a safe way. You're in a theater. Yeah. It's the reason why people go on roller coaster rides. Sure. And, and, um, and that's why the genre has been so popular. But you're taking it home with you. Well, I did take it home with me, as did most kids. Right. You know, so uh, it doesn't really work. It's not a, an enclosed experience. No, no. You still wake up in the middle of the night in your, bed, in your own little bed. The only problem is if you look under your bed, there could be a, yeah. a, a large economy-sized tarantula down there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when, when did you see The Fly, the original fly? Oh, of course. Yeah. That thing, like... I, I was older then, though. Yeah, well, it you know, came I, out later. The, the fly came out in '58. You I know was, what I remember yeah. about that one is the guy who w- was in the machine with with the rabbit or whatever when he had the big doofus. Uh, that's the re- that's Return of the Fly. Oh, it is. Yes, that's the sequel. That, that was horrifying. To me. <laughs> well, it was more horrifying than the little head on the fly. It was just a guy. I don't. It was like an accident or something. Yeah. Well, the, the the matter transmitter is not quite perfected. Yeah. And so anything that gets in with you, obviously, you you use up its atoms. Now, why uh, why the atoms would cause a tiny human head on a fly and yeah. a giant fly head on a guy well that's anyway. never really actually actually been explained <laughs> <laughs> now when you see something like uh like uh you know Cronenberg's remake or something like that do you think he did an amazing job do you well he's you know it's 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 a remake in the sense that he went back to the book right the story original story so not the movie at all uh, no, no. He, I think he didn't uh, he thought the movie was kid stuff and he wanted to do something different and and I think when you do remakes frankly the the way to approach them is to not remake the movie that was made from them, but if it's based on the literary sure. conceit, you go back to the original book. And, and, like, and yeah. I did that on my Twilight Zone episode for the Twilight Zone movie. They wanted to remake old episodes of Twilight Zone as movies, and I thought, well, this is a bad idea because all the Twilight Zone episodes ba- are based on twist endings. Yeah. And, the, and plus, they were beloved. People knew them by heart. Right. So the idea of paying and seeing it reenacted in color... Didn't really seem that exciting to me, but that was the deal. They they said you have to do remakes. That uh, was that things. the first time you worked with Spielberg? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and so I picked a story that had been done really well uh, on the show, but I changed. I went back to the original short story and changed the the location, made it about cartoons instead of about uh, farmhouse. Uh-huh. And the kids still had the magic powers, but he'd taken all the uh, adults in his life and he'd trapped them in this cartoon world. And so the idea being that. Hopefully, the audience won't realize exactly which episode this is until they get halfway through it. Right, uh, and that was and that worked out great for me because George Miller and I, who were the the newcomers uh, in that group, were we got a lot of great press. It was that it's way. that one. Yours is the one I remember. There was something terrifying about it. Yeah, with uh, I remember the sister being stuck in the chasing with the walls of right, horror in the cartoon, yeah. and then and the that, uncle, the, like just having to you know be just everyone was so terrified. Yeah, yeah, it was that great. was a lot of fun. I had a lot of good actors. I, I tried to use actors who'd been on the show because I'm very sentimental about this stuff, and so I, I tried to on be, the Twilight. I was the Zone. only director who used actors, uh, almost the entire cast were people who had been on the except Twilight for Zone show. Quinlan and the kids. I yeah, guess. Yeah. Well, now how did that? Like, where did you so? You got away from 
wanting to be a cartoonist like well, it, it got away from me i mean I, when I was is in that the, what you studied in in philly well no you can't study it i found uh, i went to art school as the philadelphia college, college of art they uh, said you, you, this is all well and good but cartooning is not an art and this is an art school so huh. you have to think you have to take something else now they had a film course a burgeoning film course with yeah you know 30 students and two cameras and um i i took that but that's not really where i learned about movies where i really learned about movies at that p period was going to the movies in Philadelphia. There were a whole lot of grindhouses still operating on Market Street. Right. And uh, one of them was called the News Theater. And it yeah. had a square screen and a long hall. Yeah. And it was originally built to run newsreels uh -huh. 24 hours a day for yeah. people who were working in the war plant. Yeah. Now it had been changed over into a grindhouse and they would run the Cinemascope movies, but they'd only see the middle of the picture because the rest of it would be on the wall. Uh, and then, and the, but they ran a lot of old movies, a lot of 30s pictures, mm -hmm. freaks and things mm -hmm. like that. Really? Yeah. But and not as a revival house. As it was a, it was, well, no, it was a, it was a, it was a grindhouse. What is a which definition? Was a revival house. Right. A definition of a grindhouse. A grindhouse never, the lights never come on. They, they, the movie grinds on over and over and over and they never clean it. And there was another one across the street, the, the inaptly named family theater. Yeah. Which, uh, never, ever turned the lights on. And even when people would get knifed in the theater, the police would come. The movie would never stop. I was there when it happened. And they, the movie just co they continued. And they, the cops came and did their stuff and left. That was and policy or was there no projection? Was, I don't think they wanted to turn on the lights because right. what would what what would scurry yeah. on the floor? Right. And how many bodies they might yeah, find, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> right. uh, but it, it was, it was a, it, nonetheless, it was, it was a great opportunity. I couldn't go to the Museum of Modern Art to see these movies. And most of them were kinds of movies that didn't play the Museum of Modern well, Art. Well, you mentioned Todd Browning's Freaks. Freaks and all, all, the, all the 50s horror pictures, all the 40s horror pictures. Uh -huh. Uh, in Val Luton pictures. But this also. wasn't done out of respect or irony. No, no, it was, it was just, just booking. It was just filling got. time. Yeah. And it was triple features. Yeah. So you'd get three. Right. Um, and the prints were not the best. Sometimes they were completely faded. But it didn't matter. It was like it was exciting. It just smelled bad. And you couldn't go to the bathroom. That was the bad thing. You're in a triple feature. And you can't go to the bathroom because you don't want to go down those stairs. Really? To that place. Oh, yeah. Because Who people, knows? People have not, not come back. <laughs> it changes people. So, Where's that movie, Joe? Where's uh, the movie where the kid goes to the grindhouse bathroom and enters another world? Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, it's too late for that movie because right, no one has when, a point of when Grindhouse came out, yeah. the movie, yeah, which was two movies, yeah. right? The people left after the first movie because they were so unfamiliar with the concept of grindhouses, they didn't know it was a double feature, and the idea of grindhouse didn't mean anything to them. Yeah, and so even though it was a very noble attempt to try to replicate that experience. They they didn't do enough homework of explaining to people what grindhouses were in order to be able to make it work. It's interesting, you you know, you talk about nostalgia, and I feel like you you have a lot of it, still. Yes. Yeah, sure. I mean, the in the sense that you know, I just I went and poked around the new website, the tra the trailers from Hell website, mm -hmm. and you have some, that's your thing, right? Yeah. Well, that you know, I I didn't know what to expect, but it's very interesting to have these you know directors and screenwriters and, and people reflect about about these films and, and the business and about directors, you know, just based on these trailers. Well, it, it, they talk about movies that affected them. And sometimes they'll talk about a movie that uh, was very instrumental in their style mm -hmm. or a movie that, you know, changed their life or, or a movie that they didn't even really very much like, but, uh, but they think you should see. Yeah. Um, and the nicest thing, nicest compliment for me is when people come up and say, you know, I had never heard of this movie before. I saw it on your site. Uh, So-and-so was talking about the trailer, so I went out and found the movie, and I really liked it, and I want to see more movies by this guy. And it's because in our our current society moves so fast now. You know, you got to remember, I, I was hooked by these movies in a world where there were only three TV channels. 
Oh and, yeah, and uh, there was and there were no video games. There was nothing to do. If you, uh, you you couldn't have a movie in your own home, there was actually space to to sort of decide what movie you're going to see exactly. next weekend. Exactly. And now there are so many things. Oh, it's impinging on people's yeah. uh, ability to fill their day that the old things kind of get lost and they're going to get forgotten. Uh-huh. And uh, this was just sort of an attempt to try to bring the past back to life for people who whose lives may be moving so fast that they just, you know, skip it. Sure. And, you know, I, I was on there for two minutes and I saw Cutter and Bone was featured, Cutter's Way. Mm-hmm. And uh, that movie was a life-changing thing for me when I was a kid because I, I saw it, I think, at a revival house or maybe it might even been first run because mm-hmm. it wasn't a big movie. No. But it's a great movie. I remember it, it compelled me to read the book yeah. by Newton Thornburg because I wanted to know more about those characters. Well, that's that, that's the way movies affect you. Yeah, and there are so many movies like that. So many pictures that are really good, but didn't exactly you know crack the zeitgeist. That's right. And this at is the time. And this is happening with records too now. You know? yeah, because I'm get you know now I'm in this world of vinyl, and there's all these second and third string rock bands that made masterpieces that never really even saw the light of mainstream radio play. Yeah. So it becomes fascinating that like oh my god what what happened to these guys. And that's the same with movies, it right? It is, it is. And it's, it's an archival thing. And, and uh, the, the interesting thing is that there are more movies available to see yeah, today right. than ever in my lifetime. Movies from the early 30s that haven't been seen in 70 years are now finally coming back and you can see them on video. The problem I found was that nobody knows who these actors are anymore. Nobody knows, nobody relates to the period anymore because uh-huh. it's so distant from them. Right. I mean, certainly as distant as silent movies were to me when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, that that you, you needed a, a, a sort of a way of looking at them, which is why there were film courses, film sure. school courses yeah. where you would want a film and you'd analyze it and the kid talk about it and stuff. Right. And I miss that. I miss going to the movies and coming home and having a drink and arguing about it or, sure. or you know fighting with people about this movie and that movie right. and I'd like this and I think movies have become so throwaway now that people don't do that they don't they don't really they see a movie it washes over them they've by the time they put their car keys in the car they've forgotten what they saw right they don't challenge people anymore no but it, no, for you now you know being you know, we talk about a, a random bunch of movies and where you started to learn how to to put movies together how how did you in in, in essence learn how to make movies by going to the grindhouse uh i i can't really answer that except to say that uh i would be on a set and i would see a way of shooting a picture and then i would shoot it and then i'd later see the movie that I stole the idea from and realize that I had that image in my head all the time. It programs just, your brain. I'm programmed. I carry this stuff around with me and it's it becomes instinctual. You you find a way to... I mean, there's a million ways to do it. I mean, Hitchcock used to storyboard everything very carefully and then profess that he was kind of bored illustrating his storyboards with the actors. But, yeah. but I, not many people can do that and he, right. he did it awfully well. Um, but for the most part, it's the excitement of of new things happening on the set that gets you going. It's, it's it, it, working with actors and having somebody come up with a way of approaching a scene that you hadn't even thought of that's right. actually better than what you were going to do. Or some guy in the makeup department comes up and says, I have an idea, what if you did this? Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's anything that makes the movie better. Collaboration. It, yeah, exactly. It is a collaborative medium. It's not, I mean, uh, it, it's not a, a one man, one film medium a, a, anymore. I'm not sure it ever really was because it takes so many people oh, yeah. to make a film. Yeah. Uh, but And there does need to be somebody in charge. And sure. there does and it's it's great being a director where you get to say yes I like that idea or no I'm not going to use that idea so what were the what, what do you remember as being you know some of the the, the more powerful templates in your mind as a, as a kid that you see resurface in your work 
that the movies that really blew your mind early on where you're like this this movie has the answers to many of the mysteries well you know i i do believe that movies often do have the uh answers to life's great mysteries yes. but i think they're different for everybody and, yeah and the interesting thing about movies is that regardless of what was intended mm-hmm. by the filmmaker yeah it's what you take away sure from the movie that counts and yes. that's real for you and it may or may not be what the filmmaker had in mind. You mm-hmm. may have interpreted it completely differently and the guy next to you may be interpreting it yet differently again. But that's why it's such an exciting art form for me. And, and there's a certain amount of instinct that, that is involved in, in, in the way you see something. It's an emotional response to a page or to a, an actor or to a scene. And the way that you present it, and which may change, by the way, between the time that you read it, the time that you stage it, and the time that you edit it, right. you may have a completely different take right. on what it was that you were trying to do. Because you've lived it. And also, you you when you're making a movie, you have to perfect the movie that you're making. It can't, and if it's getting a little bit off the page of what you intended, you have to go with the best thing about it. Uh-huh. And if the best thing about it is taking a minor character who should be in the background and moving up to the front and giving him the business yeah. that's going to make the audience interested, and and maybe for this scene not paying as much attention to the leading lady or whatever, right? Then that's what's right for the movie. Yeah. And if it's right for the scene. It's right for the movie. Then you then you come to the problem where okay now my movie is two hours long. I got a rough cut. It's two hours and I it's really pretty slow. <laughs> I know directors that will just release it like that. I got it. No, you can't do that. Yeah, movies are very even even what you used to call program movies today uh-huh. are really long. Yeah. And I I I like long movies. I love Once Upon a Time in the West. I love Lawrence of Arabia. I love movies that are oh. long for a reason. Um, you have to go with the movie that is the best movie that you can do. And if it and if it turns out that your movie is too long, then you have to take that wonderful scene that you sweated yeah. and that you worked on so hard and you got it just right and you discover, Jesus, it's in the wrong place. This scene is killing the momentum of the movie. It shouldn't be in the movie. You yeah. gotta take it out. Yeah. It's very hard to do that. Yeah. It's it's, it's like pulling arms off your kid. It's yeah. really tough. But but if you once you screen it without that scene and it plays better you know it was the right thing to do. Well, when, so when you graduate from college in 1968, mm-hmm. you, 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 what, you were doing 16 millimeter films in college? Is that what you were doing? I was doing 16 millimeter shorts. In college. In black and white, often with no sound. Now, what, like, how did, like, you changed as a person, you know, creatively, politically, uh, the whole culture was changing between 1964 and 1968. So, so when you walked in to college, you're walking out into an enti- entirely different world, really. As I believe probably most college students do. Yeah, in general, but at that this time... This was a particularly volatile period. Where do you go? How, do, how does it... Where I went was to work on a uh, motion picture trade magazine called Film Bulletin, which was for exhibitors. Uh-huh. And it was in Philadelphia, yeah. where I had been. Yeah, And uh, it was a very venerable... A magazine run by a guy named Mo Wax who'd been in the business for years. And, yeah. and it was also on its last legs because right. that aspect of the business was kind of being phased out. And um, But I did get to see lots of movies like Once Upon a Time. Right. I got to see the original uncut versions of The Wild Bunch, all the things that, that later got chopped up. But yeah. I was there at the beginning, you know, and that was great. That was a perk. But I'm not satisfied. So uh, my friend John Davison wor- goes to college, uh, goes to in NYU, he leaves, he work, goes to... Uh, the, the West Coast and works for Roger Corman as uh, an advertising person. And he says, why don't you come out to California and make a trailer for uh, this movie called The Student Teachers, which another friend of ours, Jonathan Kaplan, had directed. And it was part of the 
three-girl formula that Roger was doing at the time. There would be three pretty girls, and they would be get involved in leftist causes, and yeah. they would take off their clothes, and you know, sometimes get raped, and you know, whatever. It <laughs> yeah. was it was a series of things. And there were nurses and and uh, teachers. That was the the, the 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 template. Right. So I did. I came out and did this trailer, and it was the movie came out and made money, and so somehow that made me look good. Yeah. And so then it was like, well, hey, well, the trailer is the way in. Right, the trailer is a way in, and it's also a great way to learn about film editing yeah. because you have to take scenes and cut them down to their basic part. It's cinematic haiku, yeah. you know, and and so you learn what you oh you don't need this scene, you know, that, which later helps you when you're on the set because yeah. you know you don't need to do this angle, you don't need to pull that wall because there's a way to go from here to here. Right. Um, anyway, uh, the tra the trailer made money. The picture made money. I got to do another trailer for a picture that made money. Jonathan Cap, uh, Jonathan Demi's, a lot of Jonathan's working yeah. for Roger. Jonathan Demi's Caged Heat, and that made money. And so I became the trailer department for New World Pictures, where Roger had been hiring people piecemeal and trying to explain to them how to make these. That was their. That was his company. Trailers. Yes, that was his new company that he had just started. And uh, Alan Arkish, another friend of ours from New York, came out and joined me, and we became the New World Pictures trailer department. We did all the trailers for the exploitation pictures, like Death Race 2000, that Roger was making. And what what do you, like, uh, you know, when you start working for this man who has had such a profound influence on so many filmmakers? Well, on me, I was probably the biggest fan. John and I were probably the biggest fans Before going that Roger ever hired so you knew his movies <laughs> oh we knew his movies yeah. <laughs> you liked that that world of movies yes they were he, he made those Edgar Allan Poe movies with yeah. Vincent Price and he made The Wild Angels he made The Trip I mean these were movies that were au courant at the time uh huh but not but not blockbusters not mainstream movies no they were movies. successful movies they but were. they were still considered niche uh huh so when you met him what was you know were you uh, in awe or were you well when I met him I was supposed to deliver my rough cut mm -hmm. of Caged Heat to the um, the trailer, the, the rough cut of the trailer. Yeah, to the uh, screening room mm -hmm. at uh, on Sunset Boulevard, Nasix screening room, where there was more oil than there is anywhere else in California. Uh, and uh, on my way, I didn't drive. On my way on the bus, I got off the bus and dropped my reel. Yeah, of which started to unroll on uh -huh. Santa Monica Boulevard. Yeah, and ended up in a manhole. Come on, a serious. True story. Yeah, anyway, anyway, I managed to somehow cobble it together and get to the screening about 15 minutes late. Yeah. And Roger's first words to me were, young man, if I were you, I'd get to these things on time. I figured, this is my career is over. This is it. Yeah. <laughs> and I ran what must have been a hodgepodge of terrible editing. Uh, and he had some notes and stuff and it, it, I, it, I fixed it and it, picture made money and you know he didn't fire me uh, uh, you didn't tell him the manhole story no i did not I could i didn't tell a guy a story like that i mean when talk, about, talk about desperate sounding yeah <laughs> you wouldn't have believed it he wouldn't have believed i didn't believe it yeah so, uh, anyway after a while alan and i uh were doing all these trailers for, alan arkish alan arkish and i were doing trailers yeah. for these pictures and we decided that we wanted to make one and that, that they some of them were fairly artless and that we could probably do a picture just as badly. Uh, and, you know, uh, he had made a, a, a very long student film, which was very fast, very fancy and, and, and uh, sophisticated. I, mine were not. Um, but uh, we managed to convince Roger to let us make a movie, provided we could still provide trailers uh, at night, but we could shoot the movie during the day. But it had to be the cheapest picture that he'd made at the studio. And uh, we had 10 days to do it. Oh my God! So and John Davis was. Did, gonna did he have a studio? 
uh, he didn't have a studio. He had an office. Uh, the movies were made around town uh, in on various locations. With no permits, usually? Just... Often no permits. Yeah. No. Uh, they were SAG, but that's about it. Right. Uh, and so we figured there was no way on that kind of schedule and budget that we were going to be able to make anything decent, especially for the drive-in market, except that we did have some uh, knowledge of the contents of all the movies that we've been done the trailers for. Right. So we figured, well, let's make a movie. Uh, we'll make a three-girl movie, but it'll be instead of nurses or teachers, it'll be actresses. And they'll be working for a cheap movie company. And they're making all these different kinds of movies. And we can use the action scenes from all the pictures that we've been doing and dress our actors up like the people in the, in the clips. And that, those will be our action scenes, which we could never afford to shoot on our own. And uh, it'll be murder in a movie studio. And uh, we stole the plot from a Bela Lugosi movie called The Death Kiss. Uh-huh. And um, basically, uh, the girls uh, take their clothes off and... Shoot machine guns and then guys fall out of trees in the Philippines that were shot, you know, five years before. Yeah. Uh, and we managed to cobble together this movie that is kind of a spoof of movie making and is also a, a kind of an actual documentary about what it was like to make this kind of exploitation movie in California in 1975. With, with Roger Corman. With Roger Corman. It, yeah. was, uh, it was originally called The Starlets. Uh-huh. Uh, and we held out for a more classy title, Hollywood Boulevard. Uh-huh the street where starlets are made uh-huh. and uh it didn't exactly set the world on fire but roger thought it was funny and uh he must have thought you guys were uh were you know clever he in did terms no of he did he thought production. he he admired that he admired how we had been economical uh-huh. and how we had a product that you could actually watch mm-hmm. <laughs> which is you know quite a Quite an achievement. Uh, and although the movie didn't exactly set the world on fire, it was good for us. And we went back to making trailers. Only now, we were making trailers for pictures directed by people like Federico Fellini and Francois Truffaut and Ingmar Bergman. Because Roger, in the interim, uh, had taken on the distribution of the foreign films that the major studios had decided were not making money for them anymore. Really? And Roger had been able to say to these, these uh, filmmakers... I can get you seen in places that you've never been seen before, uh-huh. you know, by people who are not just art house audiences, by dubbing the movies and running them uh, and playing them on, in drive-ins. Yeah. And so... In drive-ins. In drive-ins. Fellini? Yeah. Fellini at the drive-in. Uh, cries and Whispers at, yeah. at the drive-in. And um, so we were doing trailers for those kind of movies, which was great because we got to meet these guys. And, um, and Fellini thought that the trailer that we made for Amarcord was better than the Italian trailer because we put, you know, we were doing it for Roger, so we put lots of rear ends in it, we put lots of breasts in it, yeah. and lots of cars, uh-huh. and, you know, and he thought oh, it's better, you know. Um, and so that was all, that was all swell. And then finally we got a chance to, Alan got a chance to make a picture called Rock and Roll High School. And there was another project called Piranha, which I thought was a little shop-worn because this was like several years after Jaws. And um, he got Rock and Roll High School and I got Piranha. Yeah. And uh, we went on. Rock and Roll High School, were the Ramones in that? The Ramones, yes. That's right. The I Ramones, remember. The, yeah, the yeah. Ramones make the movie. Yeah. They are, they are the movie. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, they, they were, we're talking about making it with Cheap Trick, but it just wouldn't, it wouldn't be as well remembered today. Because the Ramones were almost <laughs> a, a satire of, of... They were everything your parents had warned you against. Right, right. And plus they were... All wrapped into one they thing. They were gleefully inarticulate. Uh, which made them just perfect and, and comedic and, and very funny and yeah. sweet guys. I yeah. mean, it, it was, and it was really, a, it was just such a great experience knowing those guys. And Piranha, 
that was that turned out to be a pretty big movie. Piranha right? turned out to make a lot of money, and which it, was very surprising to me because I thought it was a disaster. And going in, it. well, it was you know I was making it in Texas, which is a right to, right to work state. The the unions were sending speedboats out to blow their horns so that we could not use our tracks and stuff. Uh-huh. It was a very contentious uh, shoot, but um, and we didn't have any money. And uh, we did a lot of uh, tests at the Olympic swimming pool downtown at USC, trying to figure out how to shoot our piranhas and make them look real. And we put a lot of caro syrup in the water. Uh-huh. And uh, it, we created a fungus that started to eat away, the, along with the, the, the flora and fauna that we put in the pool, started to eat away at the pool. And so when the picture was over, we had to empty the pool and sandblast it. Because uh-huh. people from Sacramento came down and said that a new kind of fungus had been created <laughs> for our <laughs> movie, and we had to get rid of it. Um, so that drove up the budget a bit. Um, uh, that should have been the next movie. I, I think Larry Cohen already had made that. Movie. Uh-huh. Um, but it was it was good for me because the picture was successful, and and more so because it was a co-production with United Artists, and they distributed it overseas, where it made lots of money because you didn't have to explain what a piranha was to right. the people in South America and places like that. And what do you think made the movie? What, what do you think was, uh, you, you know, why did it make... Why do you well, think- it was a Jaws ripoff. I mean, and, and it, was a, it was a gleefully ironic and obvious Jaws ripoff, and we, we, we copped to it right away. Uh, it, was a, it was sort of a spoof, um, but it had uh, social stuff in it because John Sayles did the script. And, uh, was that his first big script? It was his first commercial script, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and it has a certain Vietnam-era uh, overlay. That's funny that this style of movie did ride that line of spoof a lot, that there was an element of satire But that was often because these kind of pictures had been done and redone to a point where the audience was catching on right. to the cliches. Right. And that if you didn't give them a little nudge that, yes, you know what you're doing. Yeah. Yes, you know, we know that this has been done before, but just just stay with us and we think you'll have a good time. Uh-huh. Uh, and so it was an entertaining picture, apparently. Um, and it was good for me because I got offered a lot more underwater movies. Um, <laughs> Uh, even though I, even though I had an earache from being in the pool, and boy, uh-huh. let me tell you, putting on a wetsuit is yeah. one thing. Taking off a wetsuit, you could, pain, you could yeah. lose five pounds oh, just yeah. taking it off. I mean, it's really hard. Um, anyway, I didn't really want to make another underwater picture. Right. But I was offered um, uh, Orca Two by Dino De Laurentiis. Oh, did you have to go sit with Dino? Uh, oh, I talked to Dino a lot. Yeah, uh, Joy, Joy, you have to work for me. We make a picture together. You great the picture with Orca. He's a kill everybody. He's a come out of the water. He's a kill. <laughs> anyway, I talked him out of making that. Um, and so this relationship with the 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 the, the Piranha opened the doors at United Artists. Is that what you're talking it, about? It it just opened the doors in general to uh-huh. like. The, the the rubric at New World was that if you made a picture that wasn't terrible, you were probably worth looking at. Okay. Because they ex- it was generally expected by the, the big business. Would, yeah, they expected the movies wouldn't be any good. Right. And so if somebody showed any glimmer of talent, and the, they knew that you could make it cheaply because you had to already, so they, they would they would you get interested. And know? Roger knew that. And Roger knew that. And Roger would say, you know, if you make two pictures for me and they're successful, you never have to work for me again. <laughs> Which I, I th- he said to Ron Howard, I think, <laughs> while he was making Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> And, it's and that true. worked out. It's true. Yes, it worked out for Ron. Yeah, a couple of Academy Awards later, uh, he produced a movie. What pr- movie did he produce? Of yours? Uh, did he? Did Ron the Burbs? Oh, the Burbs. the Burbs. Right, right. So, so then this leads you to the Howling. 
Uh, yes, I, I did the howling. First, I, tra- I, I was briefly on Jaws 3, People Zero, uh-huh. which was a National Lampoon uh, co-production with Zanuck and Brown. Mm-hmm. But the problem was that the, the two entities could never agree on whether they were making an R-rated comedy or a PG-rated comedy. And so it was started to fall apart. And my friend Mike Finnell, who had worked with me at New World, was working on a werewolf picture called The Howling, where they were letting go the director. And he said, maybe you want, might want to come over here and make this picture. And I, I took a leap. I, I, I assumed that my movie was going to fall apart, and so I left it, and it did fall apart. Yeah. So I went off and made The Howling, uh, which was another low-budget movie for Avco Embassy, which was a company. They had released The Graduate, but they were now, uh, they'd been taken over by, it was Joe Levine's company, and it, and it was taken over by the Avco people, and they yeah. were making a series of uh, prom night kind of horror films. Uh, Scanners was theirs. And, Scanners, you know, that, that movie was haunting. And so during this period, it was run by a guy named Bob Ramey, who later became president of the Academy. And uh, this was one of their horror pictures. And um, it was based on a book. Uh, the screenplay wasn't very good. I, I tried to fix it with a, a writer named Terry Winkless, a friend of mine, uh, but we couldn't quite like it. And so I asked John Sales to come in again. And he put a whole sort of an est uh, attitude uh, about the werewolves yeah. and made it into a pretty hip movie. And um, we had Rob Botin. Who did some great special effects for us, and so we got a lot of attention for that. And the picture was a much bigger hit than Piranha had been, uh-huh. and that really did start to put me on the map to the point that that Spielberg sent me um, a script for Gremlins. Yeah, and that and that that genre of modern horror was sort of coming into its own at that time too, right? Yeah, this was the Escape from New York period. This was, you know, th- there were a whole bunch of pictures made mostly by that one company um, I- during the early '80s. Yeah, and that that and we're still reaping the rewards of that now in a well, way. Well, because they're all getting remade. Yeah, <laughs> over and over. <laughs> all right, so here you are. It's like what is it? So it's 1981, and, and Spielberg sends you a script. That must have been a big day. Uh, it was. I, I thought it gone to the wrong address. I figured this has got to be a mistake. <laughs> you mean no one alerted? Did you know agent said this is coming? No, it came in the mail. From it came, it came in the mail from from Spielberg to my crappy little office uh-huh. where, uh, where I shared with a lot of other people, and uh, and and where down the hall, um, uh, Orson Orson Welles was helping Gary Graver edit his porno film, Three A.M. Really? Yeah, because Gary and, and Orson were together at that point, and they were doing the, the other side of the wind. Uh-huh. And Orson would come in every so often and help Gary out with the editing. Of a porno of movie. Of a porno movie. Um, anyway, it was, a real, it was a fun time. And uh, I, as much as I didn't want to leave that world, uh, the idea of making a picture for Spielberg was enticing, because it was a studio picture. And that was 80, so what had he that done? That was 80, he, uh, well, he had just done uh, E.T. E.T., right. Now, you get this grip from... Stephen, no phone call, and I guess he no. wants to talk to you. Uh, well, it turns out that I did go to meet him, and uh, th- during the meeting, he was actually talking with John Landis about the Twilight Zone movie, which they were going to do together. And it just sort of, I was there, and it was like, well, he could do one. Mm-hmm. And then early later, there was another meeting, and George Miller walked in talking about something. Oh, George, he can do one, too. And I thought, boy, this picture's going to have every director in Hollywood if they just keep letting people in the door. Um, and it was a different concept originally. It was going to be uh, the characters from one story were going to appear in the other story. So there right. was, it was like more of a, a continuum. But then, you know, because John was going to go off and do another film, so he needed to do his episode first, and then they had this horrible accident. And um, they shut down the project, and there was lawsuits flew, and I didn't think the movie was ever going to happen. But uh, we're talking uh, about Vic Morrow's uh, death. Yeah, and, yeah. And I and I th- and so mo- uh, months later, they they reactivated it because I think 
the studio wanted a Spielberg movie and he was the producer and was going to direct one of them. And so I think they just sort of closed their eyes and said, let's go ahead and finish the movie. So uh, we, we, we got to shoot the rest of the movie. But um, George and I were left completely alone. It was episodic too. They instead of uh, connecting the stories, they had no, they're sort all of separate. A, and we, had, hosted, we brought Burgess right? Meredith in to do a, a voiceovers because you know he had been on the show. Right, and wasn't there some weird almost comedy bit with uh, there was a, Dan Aykroyd? There was a Dan Aykroyd opening. Albert Brooks with, with too. Albert Brooks, right, right, yeah. right. And that's right. also that was also a tag at the end. Right, right, right. Um, and so it was a great experience for George and I because it was our first studio movie. Uh-huh. And here we are in these huge sets with these big, you know, big studio backing and all these. Uh, technicians and and you're getting to do exactly what you want and it's really kind of offbeat and you're thinking wow this is really great you know you you have all this studio stuff and they leave you completely alone this is a great way to make movies well we we discovered later on our next pictures that that really wasn't the way it worked at all unique situation but it was it was an exciting period because um, you know i remember standing on the top of of the set for the twilight zone which is all sort of a, a twisty out of focus house with strange sight lines and things and uh, I was looking over at the, at the corner of the set and a grip came up to me and he says hey kid you see that corner there I said yeah he said Errol Flynn pissed in that corner <laughs> and I thought wow I've arrived <laughs> yeah this, this is, is Hollywood yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's beautiful so now alright so then you get so Gremlins comes into reality like uh what what did what what does Stephen tell you about that? Well, it wasn't it it, it 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 came into reality because Stephen wanted to make a low budget horror film like the ones I had been making, and this was his first project for Amblin, his new his new company. Sure. And I think he figured, well, you know, let's play it safe. Let's make a low budget film. Uh, he thought of making it in Oregon at the Osmond Studios, non union. Um, and but when I read the script, it seemed apparent that it was going to be pretty difficult to make some of these things happen. These these little creatures running around all over yeah, the place. Yeah. How are we going to do that? Yeah. Uh, and it also occurred to me that once we decided <laughs> that you can't put a gremlin head on a monkey and have it play the part, uh, you had to try that. We tried it, and he he took it off. He, right? No, he he went berserk and ran all over the editing room and pooped oh. on everything and it was, we, it was obvious that was not the way we were <laughs> that gonna was do not going to be the gizmo no. that kids love uh, so uh, it, it was obviously there was going to be some sort of puppetry around right. electronics and, and my feeling was that if we the more realistic the movie looked the less realistic the, the puppets would look and so I said let's we got to do this on the back lot we got to make it look like a Capra movie we got to make it look like an old movie uh, and so the people will be automatically familiar with the world that when we introduce this weird stuff in it it'll seem more like it belongs there Yeah. and so um, there had never really outside of the Muppets there had really never been uh, any kind of puppet movie on this scale before because we had lots and lots of puppets and, yeah. and because of the animatronics it takes several people to operate any one puppet uh, they have all these wires and stuff coming out of them, and they have uh, monitors that they have to look in, and the monitors are reversed because the way people react to monitors is as if they're looking in a mirror. But you have to hide the puppeteers. And so we had to build the sets up on stilts and put the puppeteers underneath. We had to build the walls and put puppeteers behind furniture and, yeah. and just you know contrive shots to, to not show the gimmick of how it was done. It was a hell of a learning experience, it was, huh? it, and it, it was we were inventing the technology as we went on, and sure. we tried a lot of stuff that didn't work. We tried marionettes; they didn't work. Uh, there's some in the movie, but you can see they don't work. Yeah. Um, and so we were we were sort of learning by doing, and yeah. uh, it finally got down to the point where um, the studio said, 
you know, go ahead. Here's here's the money, eleven million dollars. Uh, eleven million. Eleven million dollars. Uh-huh. Go ahead and make the movie. Yeah. Uh, and they, but they really didn't have any faith in it. They really uh-huh. kind of thought, well, it's Stephen. Let's give him the movie. It's a movie he wants to do. It doesn't cost that much. Let him let him let him do it. You know. Right. Hopefully, it won't be terrible. Yeah. Um, and to everyone's surprise, certainly including mine, uh, it, we went to this preview. Uh, in San Diego, I think it was, and th- there was nobody ever heard of the movie. I mean, the only publicity had been some bad publicity from Siskel and Ebert, who had gotten a hold of an early draft of the script, which was much more gruesome. Yeah, uh, where the Grumlins ate the dog and killed the mother and cut yeah. her head off, and yeah. they said, "Oh, this is," and, and they were on their anti-horror kick yeah. at the time. Right, and so because it was, it was good for business, and so they, the only uh, notice had been this one bad notice, and so we, we went to this preview and nobody knew what they were going to see. And it was a phenomenon. I mean, the audience was, they had no idea what they were going to see. They bought it. They bought the rules. They bought all the stuff that we were worried about. Yeah. Well, what if they don't believe Don't get them wet. Don't get them wet. What if that, that's just so arbitrary? What if they don't buy it? Yeah. Well, I, I learned that audiences want to buy it. Yeah. They, they spent their money or not, but they're sitting down and they want your movie to be good. And also there was something about the animation, there was something about that puppet that was, you know, not unlike E.T., that you developed an almost immediate emotional relationship with Well, that. because in Chris Columbus's original script, the idea was that the cute, cuddly, gizmo, yeah. Mogwai character yeah. would turn into the bad, evil, stripe character. Uh-huh. Uh, the idea was that you wanted to get people interested in, in 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 the character and then surprise them by having, oh, no, look, he's got a bad side. Well, about three weeks before we started shooting, Stephen had an idea, which was sent everyone into a panic because we were just about to shoot. And he said, I don't think that Gizmo should turn into Stripe. I think Gizmo should be the hero's pal and stick around for the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And... The reason we were so horrified was because the puppet was so small and there was so little room to stick gears into it that we had basically engineered it so that it would be good for a couple of reels and then we wouldn't have to see it again. Right. But now it was a major character. It was going to have close-ups. It was going to have emotions. It was going to be another character. Yeah. So we had to think, how are we going to do this? We had to rebuild him. And we had to build a giant gizmo head yeah. that we would photograph because it was the only thing that could express any kind of subtlety because the other ones were just, it was just too small and yeah. stuff in there. And we managed to pull it off. And, and at the preview, the audience fell in love with gizmo and then they believed the gremlins and they, they bought it all and they had never seen anything like it. And they were on the ceiling. It was just a, a raucous, great preview of the type that some filmmakers never get. It was exciting. It was great. And and also Stripe and the whole, like, I think at that time, you know, with, with punk rock and rock and roll where it was that, and, and also that they were these puppets, that the, the comedy of, of the, the bad gremlins was, was so, like, you know, people could see themselves in it. Well, and we, that we found as we were shooting that the interesting thing about the gremlins was that the more you put clothes on them and the more you made them look like people, yeah. the funnier they were and the sure. more interesting they were and the more character they would have because they were basically all the same design. Yeah. But if you just dressed them a different way and had them do something different, then they would be different characters. It's magic. And we, like, we had Flasher gremlin. Yeah. We had nothing to flash, but he flashed anyway. Well, that was that amazing yeah. moment in that movie where you know I realized that you know your... Uh, sort of um, intellectual capacity as a director was like you made a movie that worked on a lot of levels. There, there was a moment there where you know we're seeing the reflection of the movie theater, right? 
where the bad gremlins are all in the audience of the movie theater. And they're watching Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Right, but that moment where you see the movie theater, you're like, that's us. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. And that's, that's, I think, one of the reasons that the audiences loved it, because they saw themselves. Yeah. You know, in... In in, the bad ones. In in the bad ones. But also the bad ones are so cute, the way they liked it. Sure, sure. Everybody likes Snow White. It's a great time, (laughs) That's so smart. it was it was an unexpected uh, hit and it was it put me on the map and got me studio jobs for good or ill and um, you know uh, it was the, the most successful movie I ever made and to when, this I, day. when I go it'll say Gremlins director hit by bus or what you know but whatever. did you uh, does it hold up have you I've seen it recently I, I the, the, with kids actually in France last year they they ran it for an audience of I think it was like a thousand children in this huge auditorium and um, dubbed in French. And they it had the same reactions as the audience in 1984. Uh, that's, that's amazing. And here's now, this must have been around the time. Now, I got a weird story. My producer and business partner, who d- produces this show, uh, Brendan McDonald, uh, told me a secret that he had about you, which is that he went in uh, when he was eight years old on a general casting for Little Man Tate. Oh, that he said you were involved and he I auditioned was. for you. He got into the final mix. You were looking for regular kids, not actor kids. And he auditioned for you and did all right. And it was down to like five kids. And then it went away. You know why it went away? What year was that? Was uh, that like 87? Oh, it was later. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Okay. Um, it went away. It was a great script by Scott Frank. And uh, I location scouted. We were going to shoot it in Georgia, uh, in Atlanta, some, you know, on one of the few blocks that hasn't hadn't been destroyed. Right now it is. Uh, and we had we had found kids that we liked, but the lead character is a mother in her twenties who uh, has a genius child. Yeah, and is doesn't know how to handle it and makes some bad decisions. And there's another character who's a, a sort of a child psychologist. And so the studio said, well, we want Cher to play the mother. Yeah. And I said, well, I, I don't, you don't understand. The character who is 40 and makes the same decisions as a person who's 20 is a stupid character and an unsympathetic one. And the movie won't work with an older character, older, older actors playing the mother. So... That was it. That was it. Goodbye. The whole thing folded, and I, uh, Ethan Hawke was was actually going to be in it too, as the as the guy who gets uh, killed. Who you sort of Hawk. discovered, yeah, right, I, with yeah. Explorers? Yeah. I just had him in here. He mentioned. Yeah, it. he's great. And uh, uh, who else was it? River Phoenix too in Explorers. River was in it. Yes, River Phoenix was in Explorers. Uh, I was I was good at finding kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then Jodie Foster went on. And Jodie Foster, who I wanted to play the psychiatrist. Uh huh. And I I, th- I think I'd even asked her to play the mother, and she said, "No, I want to play the psychiatrist." Then she knew about it, so she the picture eventually got made um, with not with w- without your your friend Brendan. <laughs> yeah. So you don't remember Brendan? It wasn't that all? Yeah, I, mean, I, I I no, I do. He was one of several kids. Yeah, right. And uh, they were, uh, but the kid that they used, I didn't think was as good as the kids that we found. So oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 and that I can't remember if that movie did all right or not. Uh, but, I think it just did okay. But by that point, you'd done you you'd done Explorers, you'd done the Twilight Zone, you'd done the I'd done Inner Space. I think Inner Space. Yeah. How was the, how'd that movie do? I kind of remember it. Uh, it didn't do well. And what was the premise? You were in a ship inside. Was it based on a? It was a, the premise. Thing? The premise was what would happen if you shrunk D- Dean Martin down and injected inside Jerry Lewis. That was the that was the premise we were working from, and which had originally started as a straight spy movie and then became a comedy. Right. And Jeff Bohm rewrote it. 
Uh, and it was a very funny movie, and the uh, cast was hilarious, and uh, people love it today. But it just crashed and burned when it came out, uh, partly because of the title. Well, this is funny because what's happening with a lot of your movies is not unlike what what happens, what was happening with you and some of the undiscovered movies that became more cult movies yeah. and more appreciated. Well, I, I, I'm a firm believer that movies do not yield up all their secrets the first day you see them. And uh, I think that movies play a different way. Uh, they're, they're, sort of, they're sort of like wine in the sense that they age, but uh, a, a lot of movies that I made, like The Burbs as an example, uh, were, were roundly denounced critically uh, and it was I mean, a dark comedy right uh, but, and it was and it, it did okay because it had tom hanks in it. right it was, it was it was a fairly popular movie, right but it was nothing like the kind of popularity that it has today it's now a cult movie people have parties they they speak back to the screen there's a there's a burbs trivia book there's there, it's 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 like a a touchstone and and yet those things don't happen overnight they don't well, they happen can't. like you're the lucky day. if they happen at all right right but they they happen over um prolonged exposure and i think the home video market is responsible for probably the current existence of many directors who are still working whose movies were not especially successful theatrically but were very well seen on home video and on hbo because when hbo started they just kept running the same movies over and over interspace was one of them uh -huh. they just kept running them over and over and over and as people bought into the system that's what they would end up seeing uh -huh. and so uh, a movie like Innerspace is much more popular from being seen on television right. than it ever was in the theater. And yet, if you see it in a theater, it's, it works great with an audience. It's a really funny movie, and there's lots of laughs. And, and it's a sort of a shame about the current system where uh, most movies go directly to VOD. And comedies especially suffer by see being seen on your computer with you and your friend Al. Right. You know, the Marx Brothers used to take their movies out on the road. So as They used to do the bits before they, they put the them bits, in the movies. They'd do the bits in front of an audience. Right. They'd see what worked and what didn't. Right. So when they made the movies, they'd do the joke and then there's a pause. Right. And the pause is where the laughs were. Oh no, you got to, yeah. But now you see the movies on TV and it's not a pause, it's a wait. There's, well, a, there's, a, there's a stage wait there and it's yeah. like, whoa. What's happening? Nothing happening. Well, there was something happening. There were people laughing there. Yeah. And so to watch those movies on television is a far cry from the actual experience of seeing them- With an audience. With an audience. Uh, absolutely. But even when you cut comedy, I just have a minimal experience with this in doing my own TV show, is that you got to let the thing land. You got to be aware of that in your head. You got to know enough of that that's where it's supposed to happen. Yeah. Even not doesn't have to be a long pause, like you're waiting for a theater of people. Well, but the the, the advantage that the Marxists had was that they knew exactly where the house was shut sure. down. Oh, that's and, a big laugh, and it was the only outlet. Exactly. So they you know they weren't thinking about <laughs> what about Netflix. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> but but matinees the same way. That movie, you're, yeah. you're, that you know that that's that, another movie that was discovered on video. But it's about it's about that era. No, it's about going to the movies though. Yeah, that's yeah. The ironic thing. Sure. <laughs> Now, uh, there's a couple more things I want to talk about. Now, Gremlins 2, you sort of, like, you were riffing on the, it was almost a satire of the original Gremlins. Well, we were riffing on, it, on everything, but basically they came to me and wanted me to make another Gremlins right away. Because uh, it made money. Because it made a lot of money. Yeah. It, it didn't just make money on the investment, it made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so they, well, let's have another one. Yeah. You know, that's what they all think. That's what we do. And so uh, I was pretty much grumbling out at the time. And I, I just, <laughs> I said, no, those fucking I, can't, puppets. I can't do it. I can't do the puppets. Because we shot three months of just puppets. I mean, it's, 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 it's your brain falls out your ears. Yeah. So um, I said, no. And so they went away and they, they, they hired a lot of writers and did a lot of scripts and none of them worked. And the reason they didn't work is they didn't really understand what was 
successful about the first picture. So they came back and said, if you'll make us a sequel, we will let you do whatever you want. Uh-huh. And that's not an offer you often hear. And so <laughs> right. it was like, okay, fine. So Mike Finnell, the producer, and got Charlie Haast, uh, who had written Matinee together with me. Uh, actually, I hadn't written it yet, but he, he was a friend of ours. And, um, and we came up with a take on what would be Gremlins 2. And the idea was, what, what can we do with Gremlins 2 to make sure there's never a Gremlins 3? Right. And so we made fun of the movie. We made fun of the fact that it was a sequel. We made fun of sequels in general. We made fun of Donald Trump. Which has now come back to become make the movie even more popular. <laughs> right. It all took place uh, in a Trump building. It right? all took place in a Trump building. It was a combination of Trump and Ted Turner because uh-huh. we wanted to have him have a, a cable network sure, as well. Sure. Sure. And so then we, then we and he was supposed to be the villain. Then we hired John Glover to play him, and he played it so boyishly, gosh wow, that he went from being a villain <laughs> to actually being very likable. <laughs> And it sort of threw the entire movie off a little bit, but that was actually perfect because that was the kind of movie it was. It was it was like whatever your expectation is, this isn't what it is. Right. And so uh, it's got it's filled with jokes from Hell's a Poppin', which is one of my favorite movies, which is unfortunately very obscure today because of a rights problem. Um, but I like breaking the fourth wall. I like all that hope and yeah. Crosby stuff. And um, and so we made this wacky kind of movie that was got great reviews. Uh, and was had the screenings I went to, people were having a great time. But they had just waited too long. And then the same thing was true of Ghostbusters too. Because they, 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 both our pictures came out the same day, uh-huh. Ghostbusters and Grumman's. Uh-huh. And uh, they were both very popular. And, and yet they waited all this time to make the sequel. And I think there's a... A, a, a window? A, there's a statute of limitations on sequels. I mean, I, I, there, there's another school of thought that says it's better to make Jurassic World after your last Jurassic Park movie was seven years ago. Yeah. Because now there's a whole new audience for it. Right. But back then, there wasn't the kind of penetration for older movies that there is now. Right. And so they, it, it wasn't like they got to see it on Star's video like every week. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. and, oh, right, of course. Sure. You know, like it just happened last week. Right. So it, it was a disappointment financially. It also cost a lot. It cost three times as much as the first picture. Uh-huh. But we had made such strides in terms of technology that now we could have the gremlins fly, we could have them talk, yeah. and Tony Randall's voice Voice. We get they, they had a, they, their mouths could move. I yeah. mean, it was it was liberating, um, and it, and it was uh, it, it's one of my favorite things I've ever done because it's it was it's so me. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and has that found an audience now? Oh yeah, no, yeah. it's very it's it, it, there, there are many people who like it more than the first picture. Yeah, you're you're like a, a cult movie hero in a way. Yeah. Yeah, that wasn't the plan, but that's, that's how it worked out. But was there, but you know, in deciding, like you know, you know, making the decision to stand up for the the material on, on something like Little Man Tate, which is more of a, a mainstream movie, uh, that it, what it well, became. no, I wanted to be, I wanted to make mainstream movies. That was why I initially made Interspace, which was originally supposed to be a serious movie. Yeah, uh, but then by the time I was through with it, <laughs> it was all wacky and crazy. Can't help yourself. And, you know, and, yeah, yeah, it's true. So, so do you are, are you disappointed? I uh, no. In, 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 in my career? No, no. Just in that 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 didn't manifest. No, I was so, I was sorry not to make the movie, but uh, that's not the only movie I haven't made. Right. I was sorry I didn't make. But that it. but that now you're you're revered for these amazing movies that were you know signature movies for you and 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 have grown to be appreciated. Do you feel like there was a type of movie that you'd still like to make that you didn't get to make? Well, I loved I loved westerns, but it's I only got to make one, which was a short western for um, Showtime with Brian Keith called Lightning, based uh-huh. on a Zane Gray story 
it was part of a series called Picture Windows, which didn't last very long. It was all adaptations of paintings. And uh-huh. uh, that was fun. Um, but, you know, they just, uh, I, I'm, I'm out of my time. I mean, you, you know, they don't, uh, they don't make Westerns. And if they do, they usually don't make them very well. Right. <laughs> and you've been, you've done a lot of work in TV too now. Well, that's where a lot of us have gone. Uh, you know, the, the, um, the mainstream movies that we've been talking about are, would never be made for theaters today. Uh-huh. Uh, they would be made for, for television. And, and, also, the you know the the rise of long form and the fact that you now don't have to compress uh, Pride and Prejudice into ninety minutes, you can do it as a you know five six seven hour show. Right, uh, is is it's good for storytelling, and I think sure. that's why you see so many top level directors are now getting into uh, television. I think I think Steven Soderbergh enjoys The Nick more than he enjoyed making features. Sure. Well, there's a lot of amazingly cinematic things being done with uh, with people that have the ability to do it. And well, get it's it also it's also partly a function of the fact that the delivery system is better. People have better screens. They have they have good sound now. They have big big screens, and and there's not that much difference between the way you would shoot a movie and the way you would shoot a TV show. When I first started doing TV in the '80s, uh, it was pretty con- it was a pretty consistent thought that you had to have a lot of close-ups because people had small screens. Yeah. And so there wasn't a lot of wide shots. There weren't a lot of cinematic camera moves. It was all ba- pretty basic. Sure. Uh, and then as as things went on, I mean, people like Spielberg showed with uh, Duel yeah. that you could make a cinematic movie for television. Uh, and and the you know the the, the screen be damned. I mean, well, that it was, was what year was that? That was what, Dennis that, Weaver was that Dennis Weaver? Yeah, or? that was uh, seventy what five? Right. Right. Four. Yeah. 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 And what what do you what do you look forward to doing now? What are you working on now? Well, I'm, I've I've gotten into some producing. I, I I've, I've just produced a picture called or executive produced a picture called Dark, uh-huh. uh, which is um, directed by Nick Basile, Nick Basile, in New York uh, with Whitney Abel, and it's a story about a a, a girl who's sort of losing her mind during the um, blackout in New York, uh-huh. uh, and it's uh, played some festivals, and I think it's opening uh, in in uh, June, and that's fun because uh-huh. anything anytime you can use your clout to get somebody to make a picture is is rewarding um i've been doing i've been doing episodes of salem i do a lot of hawaii five o's um that's still on yeah it's still on and it's coming back yeah they'll never get rid of it do you shoot uh, down in hawaii uh sure it's all in honolulu and that's nice and it's it's it's, you know better than a sharp (laughs) stick in the eye uh and uh and and that's and what's good about television is it's fast which is the way i started yeah you know when you made a picture for corman you knew that this is the first day of shooting and four weeks from there it was going to be playing on Southern Drive-In screens. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you could be topical. Uh, in features, it's not the case anymore. Right. When I did Looney Tunes, it was it was a year and a half. And that was a big movie. That was a passion it. project, right? Eh, it wasn't so much a passion project. It was it was a, a movie that I felt I, sh- I had to make because Chuck Jones had been a friend of mine and he had not been that fond of their last uh, big studio uh, cartoon movie, How Space old was Jam. he when you made Looney Tunes? Uh, he had just passed away. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I didn't want it to be Space Jam 2, so I, I, I signed on hoping to try to preserve the, the characters, yeah. you know. Right. Uh, and um, it was, I don't know how successful that was, but it, but it turned out that in the, in the interim, the cartoons had, had not been shown on TV for years. And so when the picture opened, the characters were less familiar than My Little Pony to the audience. Right. And, and so there wasn't really a big groundswell of interest in going to see another picture uh, with those characters on a big screen. The p- characters that you grew characters up with. Characters that I grew up with on uh, on a big screen, on big screen and small. 
you know, because most of the kids, uh, they stopped running theatrical cartoons in the early 60s, so most people didn't see those cartoons on screen. Uh-huh. They saw them on television. And you had a relationship with Chuck? Oh, Chuck was a good friend of mine. He was a great guy. He really is, is the closest to a Mark Twain that I ever met. Really? Yeah. He just, uh, like, because, yeah, because there was definitely an undercurrent of very sophisticated humor. No, and he all was that a stuff. very, very bright guy. What are your favorite ones? Because I'd like to watch some. Like, if I wanted to go watch some Chuck Jones. Uh, Duck Amuck is very good. That's a cartoon where Daffy Duck is, it's a fourth wall cartoon where uh-huh. he's constantly being erased. Oh, yeah, I remember the, that. Being, I, you know, it's weird. You see these when you're a kid. Of course you, you do. And, and the thing about being a kid is you don't know the titles. Of course not. Just the, there's the, there's the one where he did Yeah, the, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, uh, that's that's a, a, a great cartoon. What's Opera Doc, obviously. The, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the parody of opera. Oh, and that's is, where is Bugs sings, right? Yeah, I mean, and, Bugs sings. And that's and, and that's, a, that's a late one. Actually. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 really, the really great ones are from the uh, late 40s, early 50s. So it's a great period. And they're all out on these, you know, Golden Jubilee Warner Brothers discs, uh-huh. uh, and the, the the funny thing about cartoons, as I discovered when I went to a Tex Avery retrospective at the museum, uh, is that hilarious as they are, you can't watch like twelve of them in a row, right? And they were never meant to be watched. Because you get worn out. Row. Well, you get worn out. The, the, some of the jokes are repeated, uh-huh. uh, but it it the, the, they're so exhausting to watch because they're so intense. Yeah. That after like about the the fifth or sixth cartoon I mean you find you're just you're not laughing you're just staring and and this ethos has moved on to the superhero uh, genre sure. exhausting where what you get is you get 12 endings yeah. each one with bigger special effects than the last yeah. and by the time you get to the fifth one it doesn't mean anything anymore right, and it yeah. doesn't matter how much money they've spent or how great the photography is or how big the stunts look it's just too much it's like it's almost like uh, some sort of like very mild form of PTSD <laughs> At a cost of, God knows, no yeah. man can say. So wait, was Elmer Fudd and Porky Pig part of that pantheon? Elmer, the whole gang, yes. Elmer was definitely, he used to, he used to have, he went through a number of different personalities. But uh, And what was it, what was the other one? Suck it, was Sam? Uh, so Yosemite Sam. He was one and too. So he right? was, well, he's got the he, sort of the same voice as Sylvester the Cat. Right, 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 right. Um, and, Tasmanian uh, and Devil? Tasmanian Devil, of course, which is, uh, you know, pretty great. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. People don't know them anymore. They don't know them as they should. No, they don't because they're just not exposed to them as getting back to what we were saying. I mean, there is just so much stimuli out there mm. that there's there, you have to compartmentalize your life now. If you want to spend some time watching cartoons, Every, who's got eight minutes to watch a cartoon? And it's all competing. All that content is competing for your attention. Right. And we only have so many time. Exactly. So much time. Exactly. And which is why if you have kids, um, you can channel their interests. Mm-hmm. By showing them things that you think they should know about. Yeah, uh, because it's on if, you. If you just leave it for them to find on their own on YouTube, who knows what they're going to find? Uh, yeah, you know? they're going to be might, watching the Anthony Aardvark. Might, it might not be good. <laughs> yeah, and did, did, how is that? Did, does the Looney Tunes uh, movie is there a, a following for it now? I don't think so. Oh, <laughs> I damn! Don't think so. I Give don't. it time, it wasn't, Joe. Wasn't, but yeah, exactly. You never know. You never know. <laughs> it was great talking to you. You too. That was me and the amazing Joe Dante, and uh, before that, John Carpenter. So yeah, WTFPod.com for my stuff and the show stuff and posters and tour dates and whatnot. The app, the Howl app, Brian Jones mugs coming out today. I'm a little tired today. Gonna have to forego, forego the, forgo. See, I can't even talk. Forgo the guitar. All right, Boomer lives. <laughs>